news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome to today's bonus episode. We're kicking it off with myself interviewing the phenomenal Emma Donahue, followed by our August Q&A in which Carly and Cece answer your questions. We then have an interview with Carly and the brilliant Lisa Jewell after which Emily from East City Bookshop gives you comp titles. Now, if you called in with a question or a comp request and it didn't make this month's show, please call again as soon as possible as we answer the questions on a first-come, first-served basis. Go to our website, go to the Ask a Question tab to get the link to record your request. Born in Dublin in 1969, Emma Donoghue is a novelist, screenwriter and playwright. Room sold more than 2 million copies and won the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize and the Commonwealth Writers Prize, as well as being shortlisted for the Man Booker and Orange Prizes. Donoghue scripted the Canadian-Irish film adaptation, which was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. The Wonder was shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, and she co-wrote the 2022 screen adaptation for Netflix. The Pull of the Stars was a finalist for the Trillium Book Award and was longlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Her fiction ranges from the contemporary to the historical and includes two books for young readers. Emma, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. 
It's wonderful to chat with you again. I got to interview you, I think about two years ago for the Pull of the Stars for a bookstore event. And Emma's insights on that were incredible, especially when we got to the discussion of why she didn't use quotation marks or any sort of denoting when it came to speech. Emma, could you actually just take us quickly through that answer before we discuss this book? Because it's a question we get on the podcast a lot from our listeners. And I remember you said that you were going for this fever dream kind of quality. And and that answer just really stuck with me. It's funny because I get I still get complaints from occasional readers for that one. In most of my books, I've used quotation marks for speech. I try to use everything that will make things clearest to the readers. But in the case of The Pull of the Stars, because it was set in a pandemic and I'm trying to capture the atmosphere of this incredibly hectic ward with people in pain and giving birth and ill, it just struck me that having what was in Nurse Julia's head and what was happening outside in the ward, I didn't want those two things to be entirely separate streams. I really wanted the more kind of muddled, almost... I don't know, Virginia Woolf style stream of consciousness. So I thought in this one case, I will follow many writers I I admire, such as Roddy Doyle or Ali Smith, and I will not use quotation marks. But I don't know how such writers put up with the complaints from readers because people get outraged. So I'm not sure I'll do it again, to be honest, Bianca. You know, (laughs) I got such grief for it. Yeah. The, the outrage of readers, it is it is true. I get that a lot for my potty mouth in my books. And I think uh, when I chatted with Sarah Winman from Still Life, she also said she got a ton of complaints about not using quotation marks as well. But for our listeners, I love that it's something that Emma hadn't done before, but that she did for that specific book, because the whole book did feel like a fever dream. These people were sleep deprived. It was a pandemic. They are women are giving birth and there are instances where even the characters are like, did I say that? Did I think it? And it just really added to the atmosphere of the book. So to hell with readers' complaints, sometimes a work needs what it needs. And you're so right, Bianca, we, we should start fresh with every book. We shouldn't get locked into our own rules. If we, if we don't have freedom within the writing job, then we should have taken a regular job. And that's one of the things that I especially love about your work, Emma, is that you refuse to be pigeonholed. Because when we become published authors, our publishers try and position us a certain way on the bookshelf, right? It's like they want your readers to go, oh, if I want historical fiction, I come to this person. If I want romance, I come to this person. And it's really frustrating because we are creatives. That's what makes us writers. And I understand that publishers need to market us a certain way. But have you gotten any kind of pushback in terms of that you have contemporary, that you have historical fiction, that you have YA, and you kind of a bit all over the place because I love that about your work, but I, I don't know if that's made you easier or more difficult for your publisher to market. To be fair to my publishers, they have never said a word about what must be a marketing difficulty. I mean, I can see that sometimes they will say they'll reissue a few of my books all with little kind of visual echoes of each other. So they're clearly trying to make a kind of a package. But then if I supply something entirely different, they're very civil, but they never say don't. I think the only kind of nudges I've ever had were once I had two books that I was ready to go on simultaneously and I my agent showed them both to my publishers and my publishers said this was back before room so what they said was oh please can she do the historical one first because her historical stuff sells better what's funny now is that since room they would probably say the opposite so I, I think in that case only because they were presented with a choice did they 
express a preference. But if I just send in one book at a time and I don't consult them in advance, I deliberately don't tell anyone what I'm working on. I write the book and send it in so that they can't influence it too much in the early stages. They cope. They want it with greater or lesser amounts of enthusiasm, you know, but they, they never say, oh, you should write something else. I love that room sort of changed that. So it was like, oh, well, that was that was where you were selling better. And then suddenly you switched that on its head and then proved that you could do something else really incredibly well. So, yeah, that's something for our listeners to take away. So I'm going to read the jacket copy so that we have context for our listeners. The book that we're discussing today is Learned by Heart. So drawing on years of investigation and Anne Lister's 5 million word secret journal, Learned by Heart is the long buried love story of Eliza Rain, an orphan heiress banished from India to England at age six, and Anne Lister, a brilliant, troublesome tomboy who met at the Manor School for Young Ladies in York in 1805 when they were both 14. Emotionally intense, psychologically compelling, and deeply researched, Learned by Heart is an extraordinary work of fiction by one of the world's greatest storytellers. Full of passion and heartbreak, the tangled lives of Anne Lister and Eliza Rain form a love story for the ages. Now, Emma, something that we're not seeing a ton of these days, and it seems to be especially post-COVID, is sort of quiet slice-of-life books. Most books these days need to have this huge hook and this galloping plot and this happening and this happening because people, I don't know, as writers, we've been told people want diversion, they want entertainment, etc. Do you consider this a quiet slice of life book or in that vein or not really? Not really, because you might say from the outside, oh, it's just two girls at boarding school. Like a lot of my novels, it has very clear limits. I set it entirely in the boarding school and I don't even show when they go home for holidays. I kind of stick to the the genre of a, a novel set at school. So you might say these are petty events. They are meals. They are school trips. They are getting in trouble. They are girls lining up to get vaccinated. But at the level of the 14 year olds themselves, this is high drama because when Eliza Rain and Anne Lister fall in love. They don't know any other two girls in the world who are in love. They don't know that this is possible. So for them, it's like Adam and Eve in the garden eating the apple. This rush of new knowledge, new pleasure, new excitement, new fear. Neither of them is entirely socially comfortable, right? Because Anne Lister is broke and shabbily dressed and considered weirdly gender bending. Eliza Rain is rich and has money in the bank, but she's just about the only brown face in town being a biracial orphan from India. So these girls have a huge amount to lose. Um, So I suppose that is a bit of a trademark of mine. I often look for stories that might seem like not much is happening from the outside, but for the people involved, these are world shattering events. And at that age as well, I mean, even if each of them was in love with a boy, it would be like a huge thing in their lives because love at 14 feels like life or death, right? So as you say, the fact that they don't know anyone else who's in love with another girl, etc., really just ups the stakes for them and ups the tension. And the reason I ask that is because I think I saw on Amazon that the publishers kind of positioned it as a quiet sort of slice of life book. And here's something for the, the writers out there. We have control of our work while we're writing it. Once we hand it over to the publisher, all kinds of things happen in terms of the marketing machine. So my last book was, I saw on Amazon, 
pitched as a rom-com. And I was like, oh my God, it is so not a rom-com. So is this something you notice as well, Emma? Is it frustrating to you or you just like, you guys do what you have to do to sell the book? Do you know, I, I can't think of a blurb by the publishers like that, but it could well be that they used an early quote from a Kirkus review. So sometimes, you know, in those first few reviews, you have to use whatever you get. Um, whereas once you have, say, 20 reviews, you can pick and choose within them. But in the past, I have had read readers occasionally complain about that, too. Someone wrote to me about my novel Slammerkin, which is very dark and gritty about an 18th century murder. And they wrote and said, this is not rollicking. <laughs> you know, rollicking is the last thing this is, <laughs> So it, it is funny that the range of descriptions of a book you can have. I've certainly noticed that publishers in different parts of the world, even for one book of mine, they can really vary in how they choose to emphasize the queer content in a book, for instance. I think in the States, it's just it's always been a bigger market for, for queer stories. So they tend to embrace it a bit more. But mostly I let them do what they do. The main thing I argue with them about is they always try and give away too much of the plot in the blurb. Like with Room, I swear to God, they were two thirds of the way through the story. And I was saying, look, well, you're wasting any suspense I have. So, so please rein it in. So yeah, mostly what I do is I, I try and make sure that the blurb is accurate. It's surprising how often they, they give incorrect details of a book that you would expect them to have read. And then sometimes I, 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 I work on them not to give away too much of the story. Yeah, that was my issue with Karen Joy Fowler's We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. You could see that up until the 50 page mark, she was writing very clearly to keep something hidden. And the publisher just gave it away right there in paragraph one of the blurb. And it was just like, come on, guys. And this is why I'm actually stopping reading flat copy before I pick up a book, because I find it, it does ruin a lot of it for me. Well, it's like the automatic trailers playing on Netflix, you know? I, I find my kids always watch the trailer in advance and I'm thinking, you'll get all the funniest lines as well as the entire plot. Yeah. Sometimes I can't actually remember have I seen a film because the trailer was such a, an effective miniature version of it. Exactly. And for our listeners, Lisa, I'm speaking to you now because you will even go afterwards and go on Wikipedia and look up the entire thing before you even watch the film or read the book. I don't know how you do that. But yeah, the rest of us don't want spoilers. Okay, right. You say in the author, note Emma that Learn by Heart has been two and a half decades in the making and yet I think it's like your 18th book I think that's been published can you tell us a bit about that and how some stories need to percolate how they need to have room to breathe within you as the author but perhaps in the world as well before you can really do them justice yeah, I, I find most of my fictions need to percolate. So it's not that I avoid the writing. You know, I'm, I'm writing other things as I go along. But it seems like a lot of them need a long time in the ground, partly to get me ready. Like with, in the case of Learned by Heart, you know, I wrote my very first play about Anne Lister as an adult back in the early 90s. But I was always curious about this teenage love affair she'd had at school. But there was almost no evidence for it. It's, it's before she began the diary. She begins her diary, in fact, with the phrase, Eliza left us. So it's that moment of rupture between the two girls when Anne didn't go to the school anymore that caused all the writing to happen. So I was trying to write about a moment in her life before the documentation starts. So first of all, I thought, oh, so little evidence and there's so little we know about Eliza Rain. But then also I couldn't work out what, what my job was in terms of filling in the record, like which was the bit that really needed fiction to tell. And I thought, for instance, that it would be half Eliza's point of view, half Anne's. But then one thing that changed over the decades is that Anne Lister got a lot better known. In particular, Sally Wainwright's wonderful series for BBC HBO, Gentleman Jack, has turned Anne Lister into this 
pop culture figure, you know, in her top hat striding across the moors. So by the time I came to write the book, I had this really vivid sense that what I needed to do was give the entire point of view job to Eliza Rain, that really was her untold story and it was her perspective on things. I mean, also in the last two and a half decades, I would say, we're, we're far more aware of race as an issue. So Eliza being this mixed race vantage point on Regency society just makes her more and more interesting to me. Though I certainly, one of the reasons that I held off in writing that book was a feeling of, should it be this white lady who writes this book? I didn't rush to write this one at all, but ultimately I couldn't say no. So all I could do was do my very best. But yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how long books often need to sit before you're ready. Something that was interesting as well is how little her race is referred to in the research that you did. I think you gave three examples in which her race is referred to. And one was only with this family after the fallout when people sort of seem to get nasty about it. So can you speak a bit about that? Was that a bit of a surprise for you considering the historical context? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were other places like, say, London, where there were loads of people of color, but in York, very, very few. So, um, yeah, I expected it to come up more. And Eliza herself, I've only found one reference. She calls herself a young lady of color. That's it. One time only. And there's one moment where she says something about seeing, I think, German migrants in the street and feeling sorry for those who are cut off from their homeland. That's all you get. So it's this very loud sort of speaking silence. And the sheer trauma of being sent off on the ship away from everyone you know at age six, she just, she sort of seals that up and she almost never refers to India. So I found that hugely significant. And I wanted the novel to start letting out some of what she clearly kept locked up. But yes, as you say, when things went wrong with, with Eliza's social circle, when basically her guardian and some of his friends started considering her troublesome in her early 20s, she was a spinster, her relationship with Anne Lister had broken up, she had no she had no obvious place to live, so she sort of drifted between different relatives and guardians, and she was she was uppity, frankly, to use, to use a, a famously racially tinged word there. They would have considered her uppity in that... There's one reference in her letters to how she's ordering coffee tables with her family coat of arms inlaid and how the locals are resenting her. And I'm thinking they want her to stay in her box, you know, to be humble and grateful. And she's not. So, yes, things went wrong. And then suddenly you get a friend of her guardians, Miss Marsh, writing these vitriolic racist letters insulting Eliza in exactly the racist terms that nobody had been mentioning until then. So it's a, I think it's a wonderful example of the constant microaggressions that must have been inflecting her social life and of the kind of buried stream of racist aggression, which was just under the surface for people like her. Yeah, it's amazing how loudly silences can speak, right? In Whether it's in, in letters or diary entries, but in fiction as well. So Sometimes characters can say the most in the things that they never actually say on on the page. In terms of when you said, Emma, that you weren't sure if you were the right person to write the story, did you get sensitivity readers or or anything like that? What was your approach to that in terms of saying, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to try and do it as respectfully and as good as I possibly can? Sure. I have, with previous books I have, like for my kids series, definitely I've really enjoyed working with sensitivity readers. The thing is, Eliza Rain is such a unique case, right? She was sent off to England at six and completely cut off from her Indian background. And we don't even know about that background. We don't know who her relatives were. We don't know her mother's ethnicity, caste, religion, anything. So I, I, there was no one from Eliza's source culture that I could talk to. She's a blank because she got 
sort of whitewashed, as it were. She got Englished. So because of the peculiarity of her situation, I didn't seek out any one particular person. I just read a huge amount about her, about children like her, the, the children of white men in India, basically, the children of the East India Company. And luckily, there's a lot of documentation there. So yeah, I, I read up on hundreds of cases of, of people like her who, who met with a variety of fates. Often the young women did better than the young men because they were seen as more marriageable. You know, so they could be sent off to England and, oh, they might be lucky enough to marry a white gentleman, whereas their brothers were kept home. So it's a really fascinating generation. And there were quite a few British men in the East India Company who would basically say to the mothers, you can have a pension to live on, but give me the children and you'll never see them again. I'm taking the children off to England. So it was an appalling kind of kind of trade, as it were, you know. God, that power dynamic is just heartrending. You said earlier that you wrote your first play about Anne Lister. So was there any interplay between the play that happened so many years ago and the book that happened now? Did you use any of that as source material? Did any of it find its way into the book or was it just starting from scratch with a whole new perspective? I don't think there are any words in common, it's, but it, the, the play is a very free adaptation of the early years of the diaries when Anne Lester was in her 20s. And in working on the book, I looked at all the subsequent Anne Lester diaries that have been transcribed by an army of fans since. It's a rare example of, of how the fandom of a TV show, in this case, Gentleman Jack, has actually help generate the archive because they're not just passively waiting for the text to be provided to them. Hundreds of them have, have, have formed a sort of team and transcribed these extremely difficult to read documents and decoded them as well. So I basically have skimmed through all the analyst material, including lots and lots of letters. So I would say what links the play and the novel is just my very strong interest in Analyster as a character. But no, the novel goes much more in depth and it starts much earlier in that it's all about her in her in her teens. And it's fascinating to take this iconic character and try and work out what she might have been like early on before things were so set in stone. For instance, the, the Anister character that people meet in, in the series Gentleman Jack, she's a high Tory, right? She's she's marching around bullying her tenants into voting for the Conservatives. You know, at 14, I think she could have been much more liberal in her feelings, you know, much more playful, much more open. And yet some things people described her as fairly consistent about from the start, like she was always tomboyish. She was always physically active, physically restless, utterly ambitious and energetic in, in, in educating herself. She was just a powerhouse. The instrument she played was a flute, which, which was considered utterly unacceptable for girls to play because you stuck your elbows out while you were playing it. I love that. You stuck your elbows out. That is scandalous, man. Scandalous. In terms of writing characters who are like 14 years old in your novel, often publishers will go, well, if you're writing 14-year-old protagonists, it's actually YA. Were you ever tempted to write this as YA or not at all? You were like, this is going to be a more literary contemporary novel. And it just so happens that the protagonists are 14. I was never tempted because I think there's a long tradition of novels which either start with the main character being a child and come on up or or stay with them in their teens. And yeah, just it didn't feel like YA. But I remember with Room thinking I might make Room YA and my publisher said, don't worry, the teenagers will read it too. If we aim for adult, we'll get the teenagers as well. So unless you think that YA is really the key audience for a book, you probably don't want to aim just for that, unless it has that really characteristic YA feel. Yeah. Something you mentioned, Rumna, and Emma, I want to pick your brain on on sort of screenwriting while I have you here, because we do have a lot of screenwriters who listen to the podcast and we don't often get to interview them. 
we don't meet a lot of people who are excellent novelists and excellent screenwriters because novels require interiority, emotionality, whereas screenwriting, you tend to think of it just in terms of the dialogue, right? What's, what's on the page. Do you see one as having like limitations or pros and cons? Is there one form that you prefer? Or is it a mind adjustment when you sit down and go, I'm now writing a screenplay, or I'm now writing a novel? Like what advice do you have for our listeners who are going back and forth between the two? Yeah, mind adjustment is a good way to put it. And it's certainly not that one is better than the other, because, of course, even though a screenplay in itself is very bare bones and unsatisfying, when you add all the other elements of film, it can become hugely rich and there can be a a superb interiority sort of suggested by even silent scenes that focus on the face of the actor. It's, it's funny, very little is specified, and yet the audience is hugely engrossed and moved. So I don't quite understand the the the, the magic of it, but you know, sometimes I feel I'm writing the words in the screenplay so that the actor will understand, and then if the words get cut, sometimes all that meaning is still communicated more mysteriously by the actor's faces. But yes, they are different modes. And in my case, I would say my screenwriting grows out of my playwriting much more clearly than out of my fiction writing, in that if I'd never written plays, I think I would have found it hard, in that it's a much more, it's much more similar to playwriting in that it's, it's time specific, there's less time, you are in control of the audience's experience, so you really may, need to make sure that things move fast enough or, or flow right so they won't feel frustrated. Whereas in a novel, your readers can adjust that constantly themselves and they will interrupt their own experience and they'll double back over things. But with any performance-based art form, there's a ticking clock and you're aware, like, how long have they been sitting on their butts watching? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel that the, the kind of economy of boiling it down to just the most necessary scenes, for instance, I feel that my theatre and my film writing would have that in common, which my books don't. One technique, for instance, I often use in screenwriting, especially screen adaptation, is I'll start at the end and I'll literally work backwards scene by scene, working out, okay, what scene do we really need now to lead to what we've we've got coming up? So that prevents me from going down any sidetracks or cul-de-sacs because it's always what is the one necessary domino to knock over the domino we just had. Whereas in my fiction, I, I, I would have a, a detailed plan, but I could still allow it to breathe more. Yeah, I like them both. And the film writing is very, can be very social, the, the meetings, the feeling of like this exciting group project. And obviously there's the glam factor of actors on set, but fiction is much more in my own control. So if I had to pick one, it would have to be fiction. Yeah, I remember thinking that I, I did a play for a big school competition when I was 16 and we won that. And I remember but being frustrated as the playwright because the director's vision and the actor's vision changed my vision. And I'm such a control freak. And I was like, no, no, that's not what I meant. But here's the thing. I've written novels and readers have come back and they've read my novel word for word. And they have an entirely different interpretation of the novel than I do. So you realize you actually have no control anyway, right? That is a good point. It's collaboration anyway. It's just that when you're writing a novel, you can delude yourself that you're in complete control. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to know how your readers are messing with it. Yeah. Even in the bookshop, you know, some, some readers will read the last page before they decide whether to buy it. <laughs> Lisa, I'm speaking to you again there as well. But yeah, also the bookseller might shelve it somewhere differently to where you imagined it as we were talking about the marketing, etc. So yeah, you don't have much control as you think. One last question that we have time for is... Can you give our listeners who are writing historical fiction advice on capturing the voice of a particular time, both in the dialogue and in the narrative voice? 
So I know you did tons of research and you will have read Eliza's letters, etc. How much did they inform you in terms of source material when building up her voice for this novel? Sure. They gave me lots of tiny bits of, of content, as it were. For instance, I was trying to write one letter. The novel includes kind of unsent letters that, you know, they're not part of the historical record. They're from after Eliza's real letters stop. And I was trying to write one where she's in a particular kind of, you know, manic phase. And there was a detail from one of her real letters where she said, oh, I always wear black ribbon in my hair and I'm vastly admired for my style, you know. So I was like, ooh, the black ribbon. Okay, I'll mention the black velvet ribbon. But I don't use the actual grammar of the letters because speech from the past is often very strange and clunky to our ears. It's grammatically odd. So even somebody who, who did so much research like Hilary Mantel, she will carefully write a kind of an English which is not quite modern, but it is certainly not really 16th century either. She'll often go for sort of monosyllables that could have been used then, could have been used now, but they won't have any of the kind of extras that would trip up the modern ear. So she finds a language which is kind of halfway between then and now. And I don't mean that it's 18th century. I mean, it, it has certain things in common with then and now, and it somehow reads as if Henry VIII is talking, but it's it's not actually what he would have said. And it's the same with most historical fiction. I think the one tip I would give is don't assume that you should write in the first person. And um, people often think, oh, it's got to be first person present tense for authenticity. And sometimes they will think a novel was written in the first person just because they have this vivid sense of the narrator and actually was written in the third. So I would only use first person for a historical novel if I am 100% clear on, on the voice. I think it is much easier to write third person because that gives you a little bit of distance from the character. So yes, you will have to sound plausible enough in the dialogue, but the actual third person narration can be a language that's that's kind of a, a bridge between then and now. I think committing yourself to first person for the entire thing, like writing the whole thing as a letter, is, is grueling, basically. Unless it's, I don't know, if it's, if it's not that far, if it's like 1960 or something, then maybe you can. But, you know, if it was if it was early medieval, I would not in any way jump into writing the whole thing in the first person. Yeah, and you make an excellent point there. There are some instances in third person close where you actually get closer to a character than you do in, in first person. Because third person close, you can see their biases and the things about themselves that they can't even see. So 100% there. And also how we write, we're much more eloquent in writing than when we speak. We speak in fragments. We speak in shorthand, etc. So yeah, trying to transpose that from the letters into the dialogue wouldn't necessarily ring true. Yeah. Emma, our time is up. Thank you so, so much for, for taking the time to chat with us. For our listeners, we are linking to Learned by Heart on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you get it from there, you support an independent bookstore and you support the podcast at the same time. Thank you, Emma. We hope to have you back for the next one. This has been such a treat. I love all this technical talk with other writers. So thank you all. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. 
and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a bonus episode. Bonus, bonus. We are doing questions from our lovely, lovely listeners. Thank you to everybody who sends these in. They're always interesting. Always give Cece and I a moment to think and pause and, and figure out how to answer them because we want to help you guys as much as we can. So here we go with our first question. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. My name is Natasha. And my question is, as a first-time author writing a romance suspense novel, what should my word count be? Even though I have noticed on your podcasts in the past that queries state nothing less than a 70k word count. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that. I I would say I have a pretty firm answer on this. Like I would think like 75,000 words is like a great spot for romantic suspense. There's always room here and there, obviously for wiggle room, but that, that's what I'm feeling today. That's what feels right to me. Thank you, Carly. Now let's go to the second question. I know Where the Crawdads Sing is too popular of a title to use as a comp outright. 
but I'm wondering if it is okay to use it as a comp for a child protagonist who possesses the courage and resiliency of its main character, Kaya, or as a comp for tone or style. Thank you. All right. Well, this is a question I do hear from a few of our listeners and where the crawdads sink. So yes, it is a huge book. And if you feel like it's the best comp for your book at the end of the day, it's your decision. Go for it. Keep in mind that like you pointed out, huge books can be a problem. And why is that for anyone who maybe isn't familiar? So comps are used to predict your book's sales potential. And by using a book that's larger than life, you're not giving us and acquisitions editors and sales teams an accurate prediction because replicating the astronomical success of a book like Where the Crawdads Sink is virtually impossible. So it's potentially great to position your story as in, oh, the voice is similar and the character is similar and the writing is similar, but it might not be the best sales technique. So if this were a situation where we're submitting the book, like me and my client, right? Like me as an agent, then probably this is a conversation we would have. But if you're still sending it up to agents and you really can't find a great comp, I say go for it. Make sure that the other comp though is, I guess, more realistic of a comp. And by the way, I say realistic, but of course we want your book to sell even more than worth the crawdads saying. That is what we all want. That's a great answer. Thanks, Cece. Okay, we're going to listen to question three. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. Welcome back. I have a question about engaging experts or sensitivity readers, specifically the timing of when to do so. I'm writing historical fiction, and I have a feeling at some point in the process, I'm going to want to reach out to a professor or expert in the field that I'm researching in to just help me double check, gut check the manuscript. But I'm wondering if it makes sense to do that before I query as part of the beta reader process so that I can put it in the query letter that I've already done it, or if that's something that the agent or editor might want help in selecting that person to make sure that they're reputable or trustworthy, or I guess I'm wondering if it makes the query letter stronger if I can say, this has already been done, I've already consulted these people, or if I should wait and do that maybe after an agent expresses interest. All right. I love that you're so concerned with this. It's very thoughtful. This is a very thoughtful thing to do, to be thinking about, you know, that that expert or sensitivity read that you might need to do. So I think your instincts are right. And it sounds to me like your instinct is to do it early, right? To to know that you can confidently write the query letter saying, you know, so-and-so has read it and, and backed it up or, you know, whatever it is. It does bolster a sense of expertise or just, it also shows that you're willing to go the extra mile, right? Like, you know, that you've already done the work, you've invested in this in terms of finding an expert and maybe hiring them or whatever, whatever that relationship might be. Yeah, it just shows me like a real commitment to this project. It's not to say that it won't have another sensitivity read later, but just getting those decks in a row early is, is great. Thank you, Carly. That was so great. Okay, now let's listen to question four. Hi, my name is Sarah Wheeler, and I am a stay-at-home mom that lives in a very small town in Montana. I am working on finishing my first draft for my first novel ever. Every time I'm writing, I kind of always have this thought in the back of my head. For somebody who has never published a book before, is it better to do indie publishing by doing it myself, or is it better to put in all the hard work to find all the publishers and submit my manuscripts and whatnot. I want to know what a better chance and success would be or if I'm thinking too far ahead and I and if I should just self-publish for practice and just have a first book out there or if it's more worth it to put 
my story out there as much as I can and find those publishers such as Random Penguin House or whatnot. So let me know. Thanks. So thanks for that question, Sarah. Okay, I'd say that what's better really does depend on your goal, including what success means to you. Is it your goal to hold a book with your name on the cover? Is speed a part of your goal? Is speed really important to you? And how much control do you want to have over the publishing process? If these things are important to you, perhaps self-publishing is the route that's best because while it's a ton of work, so much work, self-publishing is something that you are able to control way more than traditional publishing. And typically it's something that you can make happen faster too. However, maybe that's not what success looks like for you. Maybe your goal is a little different. So I guess ask yourself this, how do you envision your career? To answer that question, look at the careers of authors you admire. See what path they took. If you notice that the kind of career you want is one of a traditionally published author, then focus on that longer and probably more arduous path. You're still on your first draft, so you have plenty of time ahead of you. Make sure your story is as good as you can make it now. And as a final thought, because of something you mentioned, I'd like to put something out there for everyone who's listening. Having a self-published book does not increase your chances of finding an agent for your next book. I am saying this because of the number of times I've seen querying writers assume they think, if I self-publish, I'll show that I'm capable of writing a book. I'll sh it'll show a publication history, right? Here's the problem, though. It's not an advantage, in my opinion, and I'm really sorry to say that oftentimes the inverse is true, meaning it can be a disadvantage. That's because the publishing industry loves a debut. They love the idea of someone being like fresh snow, you know, totally untouched. No one has ever seen your work before. There's an allure to it. Is it fair? No, absolutely not. Do I like it? No, I don't like it. I very much dislike it. It is reality though. So figure out your goals first and foremost and go from there. That was a wonderfully robust answer. Thank you, Cece. I'm going to send it out to question five. Hi, I have a middle grade science fiction novel, which I'm having trouble phrasing as standalone with series potential. I feel it is more honest to phrase it as the first in an intended series. While the ending is not a cliffhanger, it is a clear path to unresolved problems for book two. I am well aware that writing this way is not a smart business model, but I have concluded that I can write as many true standalones as needed to break into publishing while keeping certain passion projects on my back burner. As I am not willing to make this particular project more standalone, is it smarter to keep it on my back burner or is it worth a shot to query it with the phrase intended series? Is it too dishonest to use the phrase series potential or should I let agents judge that for themselves? I appreciate your thoughts. All right. Well, I love that you were very aware that you were asking this question because there are multiple ways to think about it. So yes, it's a very self-aware question. I think in this case, it is okay to say first in an intended series. I think it's honest. I think it's your goal. I really especially think this is okay in this case because it's middle grade. And this is a very common middle grade, you know, type of publishing where we're going to, if something's going to take off, the publishers just is going to want to kind of keep going with this series because it's kind of just an extension of like early readers and, and just ways that children really get addicted to reading and, and they want to get comfortable with these characters and, and see them live on in series. So it's a very natural, natural part of middle grade publishing. So 
I would, I would say first and intended series is fine and have the series outline ready. You don't have to say that in the query letter, but you know, just have it handy because if it is an intended series, I want you to be professional and polished and very confident in the fact that it is an intended series. So if that's your vision, lean into it. Obviously, as you know, there is no series without a really successful, really great first book, right? It's like, it's just think of it as your pilot, right? Like it's pilot season. And in LA, if they're going to, you know, do a pilot, it has to be so great to get everybody's attention so that they will buy the next, you know, the season of the show, right? So really think about it as it's, it is your selling tool. It is the most important selling tool you have. So make sure that first book is super strong. Thank you, Carly. Now let's go to question number six. Hi, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. Thank you all so much for everything you're doing at the show. It's so helpful to us writers. I'm always looking for avenues to get my work out there. And because I don't write short stories, that can be a little difficult. I wanted to ask if you all have heard of the Ink List. The Writers League of Texas hosts a manuscript contest every year. And this year, long-listed submissions are going to be circulated to industry professionals on the Ink List. They haven't been super specific about who will get this list. And I was curious if you all had heard about it. Thank you. So thank you for that question. I had not heard of the ink list. And so I'm not really able to share any firsthand experience I have with it. I will say that I looked it up briefly and it seems that you'd share the first 10 pages of your novel and you're right. I see that they say that a list of professionals will see it, although they don't specify exactly who, at least I couldn't find it. So I guess I'd say that, you know, as a general rule before submitting your work, I encourage everyone to read the fine print super carefully. Usually it's long and boring, but read it. It's really important. And if anything isn't clear to you and you'd like it to be clear, for example, you want to know who will get this, like who's on the list, you can write to the organization and ask. You know, a serious organization will be able to answer reasonable questions. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Thank you, Cece. Now we'll listen to question seven. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. Thank you so much for everything you do for aspiring writers. My question today has to do with how to go about querying a manuscript that has already been on submission. For reasons I'd rather not get into on the podcast, but would would be willing to discuss with a potential agent, my manuscript went on two rounds of submission way before it was actually ready to even query. I've since parted ways with the agent in question, done a few years of very major revisions on the manuscript, and am ready to try querying again. My question is, how do I make sure that I stay very honest and clear about this manuscript's status without shooting myself in the foot and making it so agents won't even want to read pages? Should I mention this in the query letter? Should I mention it if they request pages? What would be your suggestion? Thank you so much. This is a very detailed and interesting question. This is something that happens more frequently than a lot of querying authors like to think happens because... Unfortunately, obviously, we wish that everybody's agent relationship is going to work out. But unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't, right? And you kind of have to go back to the drawing board and pitch yourself again and go through the querying process. And I know it's really tough because you were on submission and and you, you know what this experience is like, right? So it is very common to see a query in the slush pile that says, you know, I've been agented before, you know, this is the situation. So honesty is really always the best policy. So I would feel deceived, not to say that you would do this, but I would feel deceived if somebody pitched me a book, I requested it, I fell in love, and then after I found out that they were agented and had been on submission and multiple editors at Big Five Houses have seen this and and passed and whatnot, right? So again, so I would just say, 
being as honest as possible. And so some different ways that you can do that. I think you, you know, again, have all the right intentions here, but it's either kind of at the top of the query letter or the bottom. You can kind of say, you know, I have been represented before. This manuscript has been shown to, you know, X number of editors. If you know the number, I really hope that you have the submission list, to be honest with you, that you got that from that previous agent because your future agent will want to know who has seen it. The fact that it is dramatically changed is great. You know, that's great news because it doesn't necessarily give us an opportunity to go back to other people that have read it. That's honestly probably not what's going to happen. An agent is going to think, okay, I need to see the submission list. Firstly, I got to see if I love this book, right? Do I love this book enough? If it has hurdles attached to it, baggage attached to it, that's fine. That's normal, right? It happens, but we have to weigh all these pros and cons. And so if we love it, we're going to want to know where it was shown and you need to have that information handy, even at the querying stage, right? Because agents might email you just to ask who's seen this. And so if it has been shown to, for example, 15 you know, big five imprints or 15 big five editors, that's a huge hurdle. You know, I, I would think that would be quite difficult if it's more like three or something like that. Like, again, that, that's completely different. So it depends on how much the book has changed, how many people have seen it. Those are the types of things that are going through my head when I am, when I see queries like this. So, you know, another thing you could do to set yourself apart in this instance is including a really quick line about your work in progress. Because in this instance, I get worried that this author is so focused on seeing this book come to life that they're kind of like got their blinders on about what the future career looks like. And so that's fine to be obsessed about your project, but I want to know what your work in progress is. What are you working on next? Am I also as interested by that? So I would really just figure out a way to like slip in a line at the bottom about, you know, I'm hard at work on my next book about blank. Just so we can see that you're really a career author, even though this is a situation that happened to you, you understand there's a business here and you understand we're in the business of moving forward. Thank you, Carly. I really enjoyed that answer. Okay, so now let's go to question number eight. Hi, Carly and Cece. For my fiction novel, what do I need to have completed? besides my full manuscript, of course, when I query, do I need to have a detailed synopsis ready? How about a proposal? So yes, having a synopsis is a great idea. Even agents who don't read synopses right away, myself included, will expect you to send them one. So yes, absolutely get that synopsis ready. It's usually not a fun thing to write, let's be honest, but it is necessary. However, you don't need a proposal for a novel. As a rule, proposals are used for nonfiction only. So you're good on that front. Thank you, Cece. Now we're going to listen to our last question. Hi, this is Jordan. Thank you so much for the amazing podcast and all of the knowledge that you share on it. I was wondering if you had advice for essayists, specifically if we should have a completed collection before beginning to query agents. Also, if we should be posting any of our completed essays to a website or a blog, or maybe pitching them to online publications or print places to start putting our name and our work out there, or if we should just be blogging on other stuff, just trying to build an audience in that type of way instead of just standard social media, or if we should be doing all of these things at once. So trying to complete the essay, trying to pitch, pitch places, trying to also publish on our blog at the same time and build our social media. All right. So yeah, I feel like there's a lot to dive into here. I know when you guys send in questions, it's like a one minute limit and it's a very hard one minute. So obviously you can't get in a lot of details when you guys send in questions. But I mean, the reality is 
if you want to publish an essay collection, you need to be an essayist. You need to be publishing essays in places. You need to be, you know, submitting for opinion pieces. You need to be a thought leader of some kind in some space. It's not to say that essay collections don't come out of nowhere. It, it's very rare for them to come out of nowhere, right? Because if you are a writer, you are writing. And, and this is, I think, how essay collections come together because there tends to be a thematic link of something that, you know, somebody is exploring throughout their writing career through these opinion pieces. It's not something where a lot of people sit down and they're like, I'm going to write an essay collection. It's more like, oh, over a cor course of a number of years being a journalist or an academic or a thought leader of some kind, you start to explore topics um, that you become obsessed about, right? And you want to ex explore them in really interesting ways. So all this to say, you should be pitching your stories. You really can't pitch me, an agent, a proposal of essay collections that have never seen the light of day. If your writing has never seen the light of day. It's just, this is just a huge endeavor and a huge undertaking in order to be taken seriously as an essayist, as an art form they need to be out there in the world. So I think you're, you understand that. I think your intentions are great there. But you shouldn't have more than 20% published because of your future book, right? Because we need to sell something. <laughs> we need to sell something that nobody's read before. So the idea is get yourself out there. This is all platform building I'm talking about. You know, get yourself out there, be publishing things, build a career, build a legacy, right? In digital media to kind of say, you know, these are my thoughts. That's what it, that's the life of an author, right? That's your that's your career. So that's kind of my best advice is yes, publish. Maybe don't publish too much, but but this should be something again you're considering over the over the course of a long career. And and so I'm interested in, in what it's all about. And I think I think essay collections and SAS are just so smart and interesting. So yeah, good luck. And Carly, if I may, in an unprecedented situation, ask a follow up. The question involved publishing the essays in her blog. I'm wondering. Would, is that something you'd recommend? Like, what is the distinction? What does publishing mean in this situation? That is a great question. So I think blogging is pretty dead as it stands. I think the new blogging is newsletters. So really, it's like you're on Substack or you're on Medium. You know, you have a platform that you're sharing this information and content on. The tricky thing about newsletters is that I think Substack is great because it is its own platform and you can create reader engagement through people that you don't know. But a lot of times you have to build up a social media platform or an academic career or as like a way to drive people to your newsletter to gain subscribers. So it's really a chicken and egg, you know, platform building. Um, so really, I would be saying pitching opinion pieces places and not blogging as we know it in terms of like Web 2.0. I mean, like really newsletter opinion pieces. Even it could be things like, again, if you're a visual person, it could be like TikTok essays or YouTube essays, right? Like getting out in a, in a visual medium is also a possibility. Excellent. Thank you so much. I guess that's it for this Q&A episode. Thank you everyone who sent in your questions and we look forward to the next time. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.
Well, I am very thrilled to be here today. It is Carly doing your interview today. I know normally you guys have Bianca doing the interviews, but I... I need to tell you about why I needed to interview Lisa Jewell. So I follow somebody on social media who does the socials for bookshop.org. And she posted an arc of this and she read the description and I had to reach out because the book is about a podcaster and we have a podcast obviously about books and about writing. And I thought I absolutely have to get this one. And I was absolutely riveted. And this morning I was getting all set and, and getting my questions ready and all organized and I was DMing with Ashley Audrain and she's a friend of the podcast she wrote the push and the whispers and she just finished this book this weekend and both of us were kind of DMing frantically about it and we were DMing about your author's note and we'll get to that a little bit later so I am so thrilled to welcome Lisa Jewell to our podcast Hello, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here, especially with an introduction like that. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, first for our listeners, I'm going to just kind of read the description for everybody so they know the, the wonderful book that we're talking about. So we have Lisa Jewell returning with a scintillating new psychological thriller about a woman who finds herself the subject of her own popular true crime podcast. So celebrating the 45th birthday at her local pub, popular podcaster Alex Summers crosses paths with an unassuming woman called Josie Fair. Josie, it turns out, is also celebrating her 45th birthday. They are, in fact, birthday twins. A few days later, Alex and Josie bump into each other again, this time outside Alex's children's school. Josie has been listening to Alex's podcast, and she thinks she might be an interesting subject for her series. She is, she tells Alex, on the cusp of great changes in her life. Josie's life appears to be strange and complicated, and although Alex finds her unsettling, she can't quite resist the temptation to keep making the podcast. Slowly, she starts to realize Josie has been hiding some very dark secrets, and before she knows it, Josie has unveiled her way into Alex's life and into her home. But as quickly as she arrives, Josie disappears. Only then does Alex discover that Josie has left a terrible and terrifying legacy in her wake and that Alex has become the subject of her own true crime podcast. Dun, dun, dun. And her life and family's lives live under moral threat. Who is Josie Fair and what has she done? Yes, it was a great book. Yay, thank you. <laughs> That's quite a long blurb, but uh, yeah, I, I think that does the trick. It does the trick. It did the trick for me. So I want to start, you know, on our podcast, we talk a lot about the craft of writing, obviously, as well as the business and all the other things that go with it. But I want to dig into the craft a little bit in terms of our antagonist, Josie. So, you know, you have been doing this, you know, you have, this is your 21st book, I believe it is. So you've written a lot of protagonists, you've written a lot of antagonists. And so I think, you know, you're, you're such a, a skilled writer at this. And I, I kind of want to, I want you to walk us through this creation of Josie, the creation of the bad guy and then the antagonist and how that happens for you. She didn't come to me fully formed. She came kind of quite a sort of circuitous route because actually I was originally going to make this about so originally that was inspired by a few things but one of which was a man I saw through a window it was a bleak January afternoon I was walking my dog I looked up I just saw this guy in the window of his flat looking at his laptop nondescript banal looking guy but I just had this chill feeling about him this sense that there was something not right about him and I just kind of got obsessed with what might be going on behind him and maybe there was a locked door somewhere in his apartment that I couldn't see from the street and he was hiding something and so for a long time I thought I was going to write about this guy Walter who I'd seen through this window but then as I got this is like months before I started started to write the book but as I got sort of closer to to starting the book to type in chapter one and getting into it I couldn't find a way to make what I wanted to do which was to have these birthday twins meeting up 
these people who have had very different experiences in life despite having been born in the same place on the same day and for him to want to inveigle his way into Alex Summers who is our podcaster's life in a way that made sense and wouldn't have some sort of I don't know I couldn't work out what the dynamic would be or what his motivation would be to want to upend her life so yeah she came in his wife Josie who I hadn't been expecting to write about and I suddenly thought maybe this isn't a book about Walter maybe this is a book about the, the unseen wife who I hadn't seen from the street that day so she kept, she arrived really late so I hadn't quite worked out what she was going to be so she just showed me on the pages I wrote her she just kept doing these really strange unsettling things and I wasn't expecting her to do them until she did them and every time she did a weird thing I got more and more of a sense of who she was and more and more sort of emboldened to just keep keep going with her <laughs> let let her run the show a little bit let let her be Josie and show me who she was yeah and and the creepiness like to me it starts out kind of innocent right because we're not sure if it's like an innocent type of creepy and then slowly you know it starts to get more dramatic we have you know there's a daughter kind of behind closed doors there's like the leaving of some strange food for the daughter and I really liked how I felt like the creepiness was kind of coming in from all sides because we have Josie's creepiness the husband Walter who we talked about the daughter and then what's really interesting when we talk about the structure as well is the interspersing of the transcripts from you know the podcast and how it's incorporated and kind of becomes this Netflix special this all you know gets gets patterned in through through the script through the manuscript and I think it was it was interesting that I felt like the creepiness was coming in from all angles and, and it kind of incorporated this slow burn which I think a lot of thriller authors try to create this slow burn but I think you you had the walls closing in on us and and so tell us a little bit about the structure that you kind of created here yeah so in fact what you're talking about that slow burn and and a lot of people who have read a lot of my books will often if they haven't enjoyed it to the max it's because a lot of my books are a slow burn and that's fine that's how I write so I don't really know where I'm going until I've hit my stride and it takes me a few chapters sometimes and I could tell I was doing another really slow burn with this one because all the I, I like to do these little cliffhanger endings to each chapter but they were so tiny these moments they were so quiet and understated that you almost might have missed them and as much as I was enjoying the delicacy of that and it was a very delicate situation that was unfurling between Josie and Alex as they got to know each other very slowly I, I was suddenly painfully aware of the fact this wasn't going to be enough for the reader or certainly not enough for the reader who doesn't enjoy a slow burn kind of vibe and I wanted this to be a big in your face what the hell am I reading sort of book and it wasn't quite there and you talk about the podcast transcripts there aren't actually any podcast transcripts in it all the conversations that Alex and Josie have while they're recording the podcast are written in narrative form just as dialogue so it was just a straightforward narrative at that point and it was then that I realised that what I was actually trying to create was like one of those Netflix type documentaries where you watch the, you know, you binge watch it, you get to the end, you think, what the hell did I just watch? So I thought, what about if I interwove just some little snippets? And you know how they film people who are part of the story in these Netflix documentaries and they'll sit them in the middle of a weird studio on a, sh on a weird like armchair with just like one spotlight next to them or they'll put them in a pub or they'll just sit them in the bar at a counter in a coffee shop. So I was sort of randomly taking these like side characters from the story and putting them in these funny little documentary style setups and just letting them allude to something that was going to happen that hadn't happened yet. Just so the reader would go, OK, this is really slow, but oh, my God, now I've just read this Netflix section. 
I now understand that that little tiny thing I just read has major implications. And I really want to keep reading to see what the big stuff is that's about to go down, because it clearly is big enough to make a, the Netflix documentary out of it. So that was a kind of, again, it was a sort of a, something I put in at the last minute rather than sitting down thinking, I'm going to write a novel and it's going to include Netflix sections in it. It was just something I realised the book needed as I was writing it. Yeah, I love that because at, the, at first it's kind of like the stakes somewhat feel low because we're like okay creepy people you know just like in the neighborhood and then we see the Netflix thing and we're like all of a sudden we know the stakes get elevated right and it's not you saying like the stakes are elevating as the author right it's like you're positioning oh wait this is going to get so bad that there's a whole Netflix documentary of it so I really liked I really liked that kind of build and that of course would make once you realize how high the stakes are then you go back to the quieter chapters and those tiny weird unsettling little moments and they've got much more weight behind them and the reader is much more invested in those tiny little strange unsettling moments than they would have been if they didn't realize so yeah it was it was a, a sort of last minute decision but I think it really paid off absolutely yeah and so in, ter- in terms of you know the slow burn so I I was feeling as I said the walls closing in on me in a really good way and then we get to the this point where and I, I kind of I'd written down in my notes I was like on page 134 I'm like she does something very bad and I was like what percent so and I was really curious about you know sometimes we talk about like story grid methods or other kind of methods of storytelling and like at what point in the book you know things start to turn and so there's this point where and I'm, I'm gonna do a couple spoilers in this episode because I feel like it's a disservice to the author not to be like, let's explore the whole book. And so I, there's a couple, there's, again, they're going to be very, very small, very, very, very small. And so there's a point where something that Josie loves, Josie gives away. And so, yes. and I was like, what, at what point in the book does she do this thing? And it's 37%. I, I looked it up. And so it's like, the, the we have, again, these walls closing in on us. And then she does, you know, our Josie character, she does something where she gives away something that she loves. And this is 37% of the way through. And that's when all of a sudden I felt like snap. And then, you know, we're rolling okay. through all this stuff. And then a couple pages later, we see the first act of violence as well. Oh, and yes. So- oh, I love that bit. <laughs> yeah. And so all of a sudden I'm like, oh, okay, the, you know, the, the train, the train is really coming out of the station here. And so I really loved it. Like, that's when we knew, like, there's no turning back for the reader. There was no sleep tonight. Like, we got to get going. <laughs> yeah. And all of those things happened. I mean, I think, in fact, the scene you're talking about where Josie gives away the thing that she loves. I put that in after I wrote that scene after I wrote the scene with the first act of violence. And that I felt like I subverted my own self when I wrote that scene with the it's a small act of violence but it's so shocking and it comes out this really quiet place and it's not what you're you're imagining that something violent is going to happen but it's not that the, the the way that you were expecting it to and when I wrote that I was actually quite taken aback that it had happened and yeah it was it was very unexpected and I actually showed it to my early reader who was just like, did that, did I read that right? I had to read it three times to make sure that that's actually what happened because it just came out of left field. And I said, yeah, I think I'm just going to leave it in there though and just go with it to sort of see see if I can make it work. And yeah, it's still there. But, you know, you're talking about writing. What did you say? Writing patterns or... or I think a, that's what I said. A, a yes. technical yeah. writing thing that, that, <laughs> that, 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 that sounded alien to my ears. What was it? I probably, you know what, I am, I am not a technical person as well, but I think I said (laughs) patterns or repetition. I can't even remember. Yeah. Something, something that might suggest that there was some big grand plan behind everything, but I think you can already tell just from this short, short period of conversation that there was no grand plan. (laughs) That the thing just sort of crawled its way out of my head and onto the page, you know, (laughs) 
very unexpected and unplanned way. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I loved it. And that's so interesting that, yeah, you kind of, you got it out and then you were like, okay, now I got to go back in and, and add some things. Another thing I think that kind of, again, leads to that slow burn is this, like, there's a huge theme in the book kind of around this obsession, right? Like that's a big thing. And then there's the kind of repetition, which I think in order to create a sense of obsession, there is needs to be repetition in order to kind of make us know that we're obsessed with the thing. And so, as I said, there was kind of this, there's this pattern of our, our character kind of, leave, you know, creating meals for her daughter. And there's also Josie walking her dog. Right. Yeah. And so she's walking her dog. There's the patterns of food. There's all of these things. And then I think one of the things that I thought was so brilliant is when Alex takes the dog out for a walk for the first time. And it's that transfer of crossing boundaries of danger closing in. And I love that you just use like a third party again, like it's like the dog as a symbol for that. And it's just so subtle and so brilliant. And yes, because yes, there's that sort of almost a slight distaste. Because that's a weird thing about the dynamic between Josie and Alex is Alex has a sense of distaste about Josie. You know that that ick thing about her, yet she has somehow, against all of her better instincts, has allowed this woman to completely infiltrate her existence. And a lot of that is that super middle class, nice person thing. And I, you know, of just someone makes you feel uncomfortable. Someone makes you feel like you should push them away and say, no, thank you. I'm not interested. But you don't want to hurt their feelings. You don't want to be rude. You don't want to cause offense. You want to be that nice, reasonable, sweet person. So she has allowed that side of her to take over and let this work. And so, yeah, when she takes that dog and it's a funny little dog and I... <laughs> Yeah, Josie thinks it was supposed to be a pom chi, but she thinks she got ripped off by the breeder and it's not. It's just some weird little bug eyed, funny little dog. And there is that sense, as you say, when Alex takes that dog out, this strange like crossover from one existence to the other, this sort of part of Josie's sort of inner emotional life, the love of her life, this dog. And yeah, suddenly being in Alex's life, very, very unsettling and weird. Yes, yes. No, I love that. Okay, I want to pivot a little bit to kind of the, I don't you know, I, I tend to always kind of draw to this because, you know, I'm a mom of two kids. And so I'm always thinking about like the motherhood element of this and like kind of this, this female lineage. So, I mean, one of the themes I think that comes in for better or for worse is this idea that what a mother will do to protect her kids is a little bit of this, this theme that kind of, I think you kind of subverted a little bit, you know, because there's this idea that, you know, there's some themes about like mothers who damage their kids and, you know, or, you know, kids who maybe are unwanted and, and how that kind of feeds into their upbringing. And I felt like you had a lot to say about the way that Josie kind of was was brought into the world and, you know, the way that she's kind of raising her kids. And and I felt like the way that you were commenting on Alex's motherhood was a lot more subtle. And so I'm curious about like how you thought about their versions of motherhood and, and maybe how you think Alex's children are going to turn out. Well, obviously, Alex's children have gone through a trauma, which would be a spoiler to explain what it was. But I think a lot of early readers of the book have expressed frustration and disbelief at the fact that Alex let Josie into her house, despite all of her misgivings and off feelings about her. And there is a moment in the book where I think it might be the moment where Alex has taken the dog out. And she's sitting in the park with this funny little dog thinking about this funny woman, Josie, who's currently sitting in her house with her child. And she just suddenly just picks up the dog and she's gone back to the house because she's suddenly realised how remiss she's been. And so I think, so if there's anything I've said about Alex's parenting or her sense of herself as a mother is that, you know, she's trying to be the best mother she can be. 
but there's a, a lot of other things going on in her life at that time. She's having problems with her husband, who's who's a heavy drinker, and she's obviously allowed this woman to take over her life professionally as well. So it's just that sense that she's dropped, she's let some balls drop. So, and I think that's very relatable. I think every parent has had points in their life where other things have taken over their headspace and they've possibly not been as on the ball with protecting their children as they could be. So I don't think there's anything terribly dark going on in terms of Alex as a parent. But yeah, Josie is, that, that was something I was much more interested in exploring was that sort of, you know, that circular thing of a mother who become who, a mother who brings a child into the world and doesn't mother that child properly. And then that mother, that child becomes a mother and repeats certain, or even just trying to get, you know, miles away from the way they were parented can go so, too far in the other in the other direction there's a lot of a lot of weird stuff going on but you're right it's it is quite subversive it's not a lot of the books in the psychological thriller genre are about parents mothers doing anything they can to protect their children against the odds that this kind of isn't so <laughs> yeah no but it's unsettling right because we're like again readers are trained for expectation right and readers are like oh books in this cat you know books in domestic suspense or you know psychological thrillers like this ha and I love that you just subverted that because it's like everything that you had planted it's you know who do we trust who can we trust even is this genre what we expect and, and so I thought it was very like subtle and, and subversive in a really wonderful way that I think readers are really gonna like thank you you're welcome <laughs> okay so I want to talk a little bit as I said about your author's note I think your author's note was so interesting because you talked about you know you've obviously I think at this this is 21 so tell us a little bit about why you think maybe this book was different and, and how it kind of came into the world and came to you was a little bit different okay so I think there's a couple of things going on first of them is that the book that I wrote before it which was called The Family Remains which was one of the most sort of broad ranging complicated books there were so many characters there were so many points of view there were different timelines there was a police detective case running through the middle of it there was a backstory. Some of it was in Chicago. Some of it was in the south of France. Some of it was in London. It was massive and sprawling and all over the place. And I think I very much wanted to just shrink everything down to something quite sort of, you know, simple, but like hopefully really, really intense. So I'd already, even before I realised I was going to have to write two books in a year, I'd already had in my head, I'm going to like, let's just choose a small corner of the world and stick it there. And we'll just have a couple of characters just doing some really weird stuff. Um, so I already knew it was going to be a smaller book in that way. Um, and then before, just before I started writing it, I was asked, invited to write a book uh, in another genre for a different publisher. It was a sort of offer that I couldn't say no to. I'd have kicked myself forever if I'd said no to it. But I realised that meant I would, I would have to produce two books in a year because both of them needed the book at sort of similar time. So and that, so the the other difference then coming into this book with this smaller canvas was I already because usually when I start a book I think well I've got a year so I can just start slowly and if somebody wants to go out for lunch on Thursday I'll go out for lunch on Thursday and you know it doesn't matter if I don't write a thousand words a day because I've got all year to write it whereas with this one I was like no no lunches on Thursdays thousand words a day just get going and I actually just kicked off started writing two thousand words a day immediately which usually I'm not writing two thousand words a day until I'm like close to the finishing line so I kicked this off kind of at a rate of knots with the, with the clock ticking thinking come on come on more more write more words more words more words and I actually finished the whole the whole of the first draft in four months and delivered it I think six months after I started it so yes yeah, so those were the two informing things I think that I had this much smaller canvas that I was working with which meant I could write faster because there were less things to think about 
and this little clock ticking. So definitely gave it a different vibe and a different feel and a different energy. Yes, that's so interesting that you talk about, yeah, like, make you know, shrinking it down, making the canvas smaller, keeping it kind of hyper local. That is super, super interesting that you had even, you're such a pro that you're like, I just know I got to turn that dial on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very <laughs> much, that. very much. And I'm feeling the same because I've just finished the Out of Genre book as well, which is, again, all over the world, different crazy things going on. And so I'm now now thinking about my next traditional Lisa Jewell novel. And yeah, I'm going to go small canvas again. Maybe this is just my rhythm. Like big, big, fat, out of control canvas, tiny canvas, big canvas, <laughs> tiny canvas. So I'm looking forward already to writing the next one with a little corner of the world and a couple of people. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. So one thing I, I wanted to ask you about was kind of your relationship with your fans. You know, obviously you have taken over in terms of like your big hit in the UK, big hit in the US, like millions of copies, you know, globally, which is so exciting. And I know you're kind of present on the internet and on social media. And can you talk a little bit about maybe the evolution of your relationship with social media and, you know, how you stay connected to your fans and what that looks like for you? Yeah, well, I'm I'm happy to say, actually, that so my first book came out in 1999. And I had a website in 1999. And it had a contact the author page, where you could write to me directly via my website, and it would turn up in my emails, and I would reply. So even back then, even back in, 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 the, in the late 90s and the early noughties, I was already talking to my readers who wrote to me directly. And even back then, I'd go on to like, if somebody like left an interesting review on Amazon, I'd reply to the review on Amazon. So I've always been very keen to interact with with my readers. So it's not something I've come to late in the day because of social media. I was doing it before social media existed. And of course, it's just sort of built up and up and up. Then I was on Facebook and that was another way for me to communicate. I've got 5,000 friends on my personal Facebook page. I can assure you that most of those are not my actual friends. Most of them are my readers. And I'm really happy to have them there in my personal life, sharing all my you know, I'm not allowed to share my kids anymore because they, they won't let me. But yeah, so I've, I've always had that very, very, very small boundaries between me and my readers. I like to let them in as much as I can. And then Twitter, never really took to Twitter. I don't really do much on Twitter. I will reply to people if they've tweeted me. But apart from that, I don't really join in conversations on Twitter. And then, of course, there's Instagram. And that is a two hour a day job for me because I can't. I can't bear the thought of somebody reaching out to me on social media in any way and not acknowledging it. So even if it's just a, you know, a smiley face emoji or a love heart or something, I'll acknowledge in everything. And if somebody writes to me in my PMs and wants to ask me a question about, particularly I've enjoyed talking to people about the ending of number this is true I've had quite a lot of questions about that in my in my pms about the ending of it I'm very happy to engage in quite lengthy conversations you know I've got lots and lots of time for communicating with readers and part of that's just a natural instinct because I'm polite and well brought up and I'm friendly and outgoing and I don't have any sort of you know need to protect myself and part of that is just a sense that if you make that connection with a reader they, they they'll stay they'll stick around they'll want to you know they'll have a sense of loyalty to you. And that's been a massive part of how I've got to where I am is been a very slow burn talking about my slow burn books. I've had a slow burn career. Uh, and I think a lot of that is to do with those interactions with readers. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with your saying about, you know, they they will be loyal if they feel like they have, you know, this personal connection with you. And and that is that's so important. And they will they will stay the course. So yeah, definitely, I, I totally definitely. Yeah. yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask in the author's note. So you, you wrote 
a certain character's name and you said that the person's name was given to you by the winner of an auction to raise funds for the charity Young Lives versus Cancer. And so is this something you do regularly? Do you want to talk a little bit about your relationship with this charity and, and how this name came into the book? So there's no personal connection at all. I don't know any young people with cancer, so it doesn't come from a personal place at all. It comes very much from an email in my inbox from a lovely girl from the charity saying, would you be interested in donating a character name? We have we do an auction every year and they used to do it. I, used to, I think they used to do an actual auction, like in a sort of a din, dinner dance setting. like. And now it's just on eBay. So they just they, they do the auction on eBay. And I, I now alternate between one year I'll do it for that cancer charity and the next year. So the book that I've just finished writing, the outer genre book, has got a character name in it for a charity that's run by a friend of mine from her church over the road. It's not my church. I don't do church, but she does church and it raises money for people who've come out of prison, young people who've come out of prison to help them get back on their feet. So neither of them are personal to me. It just happens that people ask me and it's just a nice thing to do. And it's an easy thing to do. And I have had a couple of character names over the course of my books that have actually, the character name has informed the character because it was just such a great name. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, there's no, there's no personal thing about it. Yeah. It's just... yeah, I love Giovanni was a very strong name. That was a good name yeah. for this one. Yes. And you've actually reminded me that I must send him a copy. I've just had my finished copies through and that's part of the deal. You get a signed copy. When you win the auction, you get a signed copy of the book when it's published with with your with the the one with your name in it. So I must oh. send it to must send it to Giovanni. <laughs> yes, Giovanni, you're getting you're getting your book. Yeah. Okay. So the last thing I wanted to ask was about I don't think this is a spoiler. I'm just kind of curious because this doesn't come up in the book really. But so all of the book is you know and it's called None of This Is True, right? So it's like what are we what are we supposed to even think about the world? Like you've shaken me up, Lisa. But mm -hmm. so the premise of the book is that these two are birthday twins. And so I am, I was curious for the whole book about whether Josie was actually born on the same day as Alex oh. or whether it was a whole setup from Josie. No. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. No. As, far, as, far, <laughs> as I was writing it, I was very much, because there is a bit at the beginning of the book where, where they, where they meet in the pub and Walter says, oh, look, it's her birthday too. So he's the first person to make the connection that they, they these two women might be sharing a birthday no it, it, it is definitely her birthday on the okay. same day as Alex you and shaking me I'm like why do I even believe Sorry. anymore Lisa I don't even know <laughs> <laughs> I have to say it is a little bit yeah it, it, it there are some true things in the book so yeah go okay. know that before you go into it know that some of it is true some of it is true. Well, there you go, guys. You heard it from Lisa. Some <laughs> of the book is true. It's called <laughs> None of This is True. It's a really great book. And I hope all of you guys go out and read it. It is one you can just inhale and also enjoy. It's got the slow burn, but then, you know, absolutely picks up the pace and, and all of her little breadcrumbs are incredible. So Lisa, very well done. It's an incredible book and we wish you all the success with it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. 
To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi everyone, welcome back to another comps segment after us taking a few months break. And boy, did you desperately need your comps because as soon as we opened the lines, we were pretty much flooded. Today we are joined by Emily Summer from East City Bookshop. Once again, that's in DC. So if you ever head out there, go and support the bookstore. Emily, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It is so nice to be back after a break. Yeah, it's so lovely to see your wonderful face, which I can see, but the listeners can't. I'm glad because I don't have any makeup on and my hair is still wet. (laughs) I'm I'm glad you're the only one who can see me. (laughs) The same. Right. So what we're going to be doing today is we have got time for 21 of the comps questions. If your question was not included this month, we are really sorry. We were limited for time. If it's not answered, please call us again and request the comp titles for next month. The earlier you get in, the more chance you have of getting picked because we do try and set this up in advance. All right, Emily, will you kick us off with the first comp request? I'm seeking comp help for my upmarket novel, Nine Greek Months. Vivian from Arkansas moves to Greece for a fellowship in classical history. With a local man, she experiences the passion she craves, but a disturbing discovery about his life dashes her hopes for their relationship. She also deals with harassment from her fellowship advisor that threatens to ruin her chances for her PhD. When the sexy local man comes back in the picture, she must question whether she can forgive him and have the passionate love she craves. For comps, I'm thinking, you made a fool of death with your beauty for poetic descriptions of location and steamy scenes, possibly lessons in chemistry for the critiquing of the patriarchy aspect. 365 Days, although very different writing style, has the same aspect of a foreign woman hooking up with a gorgeous European man for a steamy romance. I have not found novels that take place in Greece that fit. Ones I found that take place in Greece that are new enough are often self-published and don't have enough reviews. Any thoughts? So I, you know, the longer we do this, the better people get at their own comps. So here we already have several good comps, three good comps dealing with different aspects of this novel about moving to Greece, finding passion with a local, dealing with the harassment and the patriarchy. And I love the comps that were mentioned. You made a fool of death with your beauty, lessons in chemistry, 365 days. I especially love that triumvirate because they are all so very different. To those, I would add the book Excavations by Kate Myers. So that is a book where, again, a woman is going abroad. I believe it is in Greece. It's either in Greece or in Italy. Going abroad to do work. This is several different women in the book Excavations. And they are indeed figuring out a way to stick it to the man and rediscover themselves. So I think the the academic discovery travel angles will all work very well. For another comp for a European romance, I would suggest Royal Holiday by fan favorite Jasmine Guillory. We love Jasmine Guillory, and Royal Holiday is one where a mother and daughter travel abroad, and the mother in this one, it's a slightly, slightly older character, finds an unexpected foreign love. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you. Okay, here's our next one. I'm looking for comps for my dual POV upmarket women's fiction novel. Ten-year-old Lainey forms a secret friendship with her new neighbor, Nova, and rescues her from the abuse inflicted upon her at home. 
Thirty years later, the women are reunited, but now it is Lainey who needs rescuing. Haunted by tragedy and afflicted by anxiety that manifests itself in obsessive-compulsive disorder, she flees her home, hoping to outrun her past and the affliction that has crippled her. Nova takes her in, determined to repay a kindness. With the help of Nova and a mental health professional, Lainey starts on the road to recovery with ammunition to battle her anxiety. But convincing her that her tricky brain does not deem her unworthy of being loved is an equal challenge. I thought of The People We Keep by Alison Larkin because it is similar in tone, has a protagonist running away from her past, keeping secrets, and forming an unexpected family. But I'm looking for a comp that addresses a mental health quest and confronts the stigmas of a mental health designation. I would also love to find a comp that demonstrates a unique and enduring friendship. Friendship through the ages stories are maybe my favorite subgenre of fiction. I would read any book that is pitched as a friendship through the ages, a complicated, enduring friendship. So I am here for this story about Lainey and Nova. I also adore the book, The People We Keep by Alison Larkin. I love its tone. I love the plot. So I was excited to suggest a couple of other comps. Dealing with the mental health aspect of this one, I would suggest both Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. It is not a friendship story in this same way, although there are relationships that endure. It is very much a story about dealing with mental health issues, and it is an upmarket and very accessible. It is not, it's not a downer despite the mental health themes. I would also suggest the very recent Talking at Night by Claire Daverly. It came out here in the U.S. in June, I believe. I just read it last week. I cannot stop thinking about it. It is a marvelous story. It is a story of a friendship through the years as well. And one of the main characters has OCD and significant anxiety. The other main character has depression and suicidal ideation. In that story, it is not just a platonic friendship. It, it's a it's a love story as well, but I loved it. I, I want everybody to read it, and I think it could work here. And then for another book about a unique and enduring and potentially troubled friendship, I can never miss an opportunity to shout out the books by Rufy Thorpe. And the one that I think fits best here is probably The Girls from Corona Del Mar. It might be slightly too old, but nobody writes friendship through the years with the most unique voice like Rufy Thorpe. You might also look at The Knockout Queen, but I love her and I hear about a friendship through the ages and I think about The Girls from Corona Del Mar. Thank you, Emily. Another more recent one might be The Celebrants by Stephen Rowley. That tracks five friends, right? Yes. And we love Stephen Rowley. I mean, I just think he is the best writer and the best human. Agreed, 100%. All right, third comp query. Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I am looking for comp titles for my contemporary YA novel, Chaotic Good, a wry coming-of-age adventure exploring first love, chosen family, and personal agency in the face of adversity. The book alternates between the first-person POVs of Sardonic Rosalind, a trans foster teen, and Affable Garrett, the cis nerd who steals her heart. Both characters find escape from poverty and family dysfunction through sessions of Dungeons and Dragons with their band of misfit friends. But when Rosalind steals an expensive knife to fund her escape from a transphobic foster home, she unknowingly puts Garrett in a catch-22 in which he drops out of school and abandons his college plans to help his mom avoid conviction for a crime she didn't commit. 
Sprinkled throughout the book are chapters depicting the protagonist's vivid Dungeons and Dragons fantasy lives, where a rogue and paladin undertake a parallel journey to free themselves from their own monsters. Any assistance you can offer with comp titles would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. So for this one, I'm afraid I I could not pinpoint something that was Dungeons and Dragons specific for that thread. So I was trying to think of contemporary young adult that dealt with those themes of personal agency and finding yourselves and significant relationship. And it sounds like the characters in this book are going through significant traumatic struggles. With that in mind, and with the inclusion of a trans character, I would look at the, as I'm sure you are, looking at the books by Mason Deaver. I think I wish you all the best could work. I would look at A.S. King's books, Nina LaCour, particularly, maybe We Are Okay. And I think that Jeff Zentner writes a really difficult, writes about teens who are going through really difficult things and finding connection. The Serpent King might be one that works here. So I was trying to capture the spirit of these characters and what they're going through. And I think all of those might work in terms of tone and theme. Marvelous. Okay, here's our next one. Hi, my name is Barb and I'm grateful for any comps you can recommend for my debut novel. My women's fiction contemporary novel, Told in the First Person, is a coming-of-age story about a funny and resilient 19-year-old female. She makes a series of mistakes, triggering her anxiety and hindering her plans to move out of her father's home. After she learns about her family's history of mental illness and loses her job, she hides out in her bedroom. When her half-brother becomes concerned, she bullies him. She quickly recognizes her actions of hiding out and bullying are similar to what her mother had done prior to dying by suicide. The protagonist seeks some help and gets out of the house, where she makes a decision that helps save the life of a stranger. I love it when people say their name so I can say hello by name. So hi to Barb. I love hearing about your your debut. And I love sort of someone who is struggling and figuring things out, particularly when it sounds like in this case that we see like real growth and change. The first novel that I thought of is probably too big. And that's one that you probably thought of as well, which is Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine by Gail Honeyman, because that's another someone who is a character who is really hiding out is not allowing themselves to experience the fullness of life, Is not does not have the connections they need, but it sort of figures it out, gets out of the house. There is even at the beginning of the book, not at the, be- at the end, but sort of a sa- helping to save other people. So I would look at Eleanor Oliphant again, might be too big, but it's so good. You can't hurt to mention it. I also thought about Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes. So I don't think Evie Drake is a character who is perhaps as difficult as it sounds like our character might be in this one, but that's definitely a case of like a coming of age, a just figuring things out, coming out of one's shell, moving on, and it might have a tone too because we've got a funny and resilient character in this comp and Evie Drake's tone is certainly very funny, lighter than the subject matter might suggest, the tone is and very resilient. Along those same lines, I thought about The Unsinkable Greta James by Jennifer E. Smith. That is also a character who I think is probably not as maybe snarky and mean as this character might be, but is is struggling with grief, overcoming grief, looking for connection, and just trying to figure out next steps. So I think that that, depending on the tone, I think that one could work as well. And then if the tone of those 
is not quite interesting enough or not quite right, maybe Milk Fed by Melissa Broder. So that one is a very distinctive voice. I could see how the the voice and the tone might not work, but it is one of the few books I could think about where there is a real character arc and real change that happens through the course of the book. So that's why I, I mentioned that. And I love the book. Thank you. Okay, here's our next one. Hi, I'm seeking comps for my memoir about a recent college graduate with no job prospects who boards a plane for a year-long adventure in Paris, hoping to improve her French while nannying for a French family, only to be plunged into darkness two months after her arrival when a stranger sexually assaults her. Isolated and alone in a foreign country in the early 1990s, she chooses to stay in France and begin again, seeking healing and transforming herself in the process. The book takes place over the course of one year in Paris and centers on the question, how does healing begin? It has a spiritual component to it, explores themes related to coming of age, setting off on an adventure that takes an unexpected and unwanted turn, the beginning of healing after trauma, and spiritual wrestling. Chanel Miller's Know My Name is one possible comp, but it differs from mine because of its focus on navigating the justice system after sexual assault. The core audience for this book is women galvanized by the Me Too movement, survivors of life-threatening or overwhelming experiences, and readers grappling with deep questions of faith. Thank you. So if you've listened to the podcast before, you know I love a memoir, one of my very favorite genres. This sounds like a very difficult situation, so I'm so sorry you had to go through something so hard. I think that the, the comp of Know My Name by Chanel Miller is a great one for one that is not quite as enormous and that doesn't deal with the justice system in the same way. I might mention Notes on a Silencing by Lacey Crawford. That again is a, that is a student assault and deals with sort of how the school handled it, but it's not quite as justice system focused as Know My Name, nor is it quite as huge. I think so. I think that that could be a good comp. It's it definitely still sold well and was recognizable. And then in terms of a book about an adventure, an, an attempted adventure and travel that goes terribly wrong, I think I've mentioned before, The Rules Do Not Apply by Ariel Levy. So that's a very different circumstance, but I think that the story fits because there are parallels. In that case, Ariel Levy was on a very far away trip remote trip and suffered a traumatic miscarriage. And she definitely struggles in the aftermath of that with the larger questions. So it doesn't have, it's not necessarily a faith-based discussion, but it certainly wrestles with, with bigger philosophical questions. I think that one could work really well. Awesome, Emily. Thank you. Okay. Here's our next one. Hi, I'm looking for help finding comp titles for my upper YA action adventure novel, Into the Fire. I'm currently using Tracy Dion's Legendborn for the strong female protagonist hell-bent on uncovering the truth behind her mom's death, and Saba Tahir is an ember in the ashes for the similar rebellious vibe and the blend of action and romance. But my book is set in the contemporary world with no magical element, and both these comp titles are YA fantasies. Think undercover missions, spies, and guns instead of magic and lore. My book is dual point of view between the female main character and the male main character and concerns themes like female empowerment, the importance of thinking for yourself, corrupt governments, and the effect media has on our daily lives. Thank you for all you do. So I love that this YA is action adventure and not fantasy. Not that we don't love fantasy. We totally do. But I do think that the genre could use a little more action adventure and 
spies instead of magic. So I like that this is going in a different direction. Not that it matters what, <laughs> what I like, but I do. So I always get excited when I hear I'm like, oh, what an interesting pitch. Our section could use that. They're a little bit old, but the YA author Allie Carter has a has a couple of different spy series. So I would look at Allie Carter's backlist and see what is most recent and what feels the most like it could fit. But that is spies, not magic and adventure, not fantasy. So I would look at Allie Carter's books and see if any of that fits. And I would also look at Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. Consider it. It's big. It's old. But it is, it reads like upper YA, even though we shelve it in the adult section, I probably sell it more to teenagers than I do to fully grown adults. And it is, you know, sci-fi and speculative, but at its heart, that is a book that is an action adventure book. It is, it's a mission based. I think it feels very action adventure in a way that a lot don't. It is missing what well, has, it does have one a strong female character, but it does not have, it's a male protagonist. So, but think about it. I think it could work. Perfect. Okay. Here's our next one. Hi, Bianca and Emily. My name is Michelle and I'm looking for comp titles for my work in progress. Still untitled, or I would include the title to help. It's a cozy mystery told in the first person and begins when a body is discovered in the trunk of a lease return at a car dealership. The victim is an employee and it quickly becomes clear that the murderer must also be an employee. So far, I feel that the maid might be a good comp, but unlike Molly, my protagonist is a manager of the dealership, married, and in her mid-40s. She is not neurodivergent, but is very snarky in her commentary and jaded with her career and marriage. There is an affair subplot that is relevant to the overall storyline as well. The protagonist becomes a suspect, which offers the maid vibes once again, but I wonder how else to convey the differences in the main character's age, personality, and circumstances and overall, and looking for a few other comp titles. Thank you both for all that you do for the writing community. I look forward to hearing your recommendations. I love this premise, like a body in the lease return of a car dealership. I am here for it. And normally I skew much darker in my mystery readings, but this one I think sounds outstanding. I think the maid is a great comp, even though our protagonist here is neurotypical. I would suggest for a neurotypical protagonist, in a mystery that feels cozy or fun, Finley Donovan, which has probably already crossed your mind by El Casamano. So fun. Finley is another non-detective who gets caught up in terrible situations that she has to solve. And I would also mention Grave Reservations by Sherry Priest, which is another, we've got a non-detective who finds herself having to solve some issues very funny. Both of them have a really great voice, charming in the same way that the maid is very charming and engaging and striking. They're not dark. I think those could work really well. Thank you. There's one that's coming out soon by Nina Simon or Nina Simon, which is called Mother Daughter. I think it's Murder Night, right? I think yes, it's an Mother Indian Daughter Murder Night. Yes. Mm. I have not read it yet, but it is on my list. It sounds outstanding. Yeah. So that may be one to consider as well. Okay, here's our next one. Hi, Emily. My name is Sarah, and I'm looking for a second comp for my literary debut. I'm working off of Otessa Moshfag's My Year of Rest and Relaxation because my narrator is detached and darkly humorous. But I need a comp for the second timeline, which takes place in the past. 
my narrator reflects on a time when she had an inappropriate relationship with a street vendor outside her New York City middle school. I thought of my dark Vanessa, but that relationship is between a student and a teacher with a complex power struggle. This one is perhaps even more complex because both the street vendor and my first person narrator are powerless. Thanks so much. Thank you for all you do for new writers like me. Okay, I'm I'm here for this one as well. I am so intrigued. You had me at a detached and darkly humorous narrator, like my year of rest and relaxation. So for for comps for other Atessa Moshfag similar comps, I would look at Luster by Raven Leilani, maybe The New Me by Hallie Butler, Sad Janet by Lucy Bridge. These are all narrators who are it's so dark, but they are so funny and readable. I think all of those would fit that tone. In terms of a comp for the relationship, I appreciate that this is not a teacher-student situation and perhaps more complicated than that, it sounds like. I think My Dark Vanessa might still be worth mentioning, but for one, for something that is even more complicated in terms of consent and the how the relationship unfolds, I want to suggest one of my favorite books that has not gotten enough attention, didn't get enough attention. It still doesn't, although we sell it like crazy at East City Bookshop. And it's called All the Ugly and Wonderful Things by Bryn Greenwood. And it is, if ever there was a complicated relationship in a book, it's this one. The main character is a young girl growing up in desperate circumstances. Her parents are largely absent and not a good influence or stable force when they are around. And when she is young, she meets a much older man who is also in sort of a desperate situation. They become friends. The relationship ends up progressing as she grows older, but it is very polarizing and complicated, but it is not nearly, it is not a straightforward, like teacher takes advantage at all. I won't say anything more because I don't want to spoil the experience of reading this book, but I would I would read it and think if that might work. And it's a great book. Oh, and one more. The First Bad Man by Miranda July. It's got that Atessa voice and sort of a strange relationship that you're uncertain about. I would consider that one too. It's a great one. I'm just having a look here. There was a Samantha Downing one. I think for your own good. Yes. That was the one which might also work as a comp here as well. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that's a great idea. Okay, great. Next one. Hi, I'm Beth. Thanks so much for all the help and advice you give on your podcast. It's an incredible resource. I'm looking for help with comp titles for my middle grade novel. It's about nine-year-old Sam, whose parents are making him spend Christmas at his grandparents' house this year. He didn't want to go, and now he may have found a way home. A magical ball promises him a wish, if he can solve a riddle. As Sam looks for clues that will get him home, he discovers flying reindeer, mysterious factories, elves, and, ultimately, that his grandparents actually live at the North Pole. He has such a great adventure and is so amazed by what he's found that when he finally solves the riddle and it's time to make a wish, he's no longer sure he wants to leave. Obviously, Christmas is a major theme in my book. There's also the riddle slash mystery element, and then there's a component dealing with Sam's relationship with his family, really pushing against them, especially in the beginning, and then gradually coming together by the end. Of course, because it's Christmas. The tone is light and playful, and it's hopefully a little funny in places. Anyway, I can't wait to hear your suggestions. Thank you again. Love your show. Bye. I don't think we have enough middle grade holiday books. So write some more middle grade holiday books so we can stack up our our holiday and winter tables. For this one, I would suggest Top Elf by Caleb Zane Hewitt, who is a former bookseller turned 
author who's published by Scholastic, and it is sort of a zany Christmas story, as the the elf in the title might suggest. Christmas magic, Christmas fun, very light and enjoyable. I would also suggest The Girl Who Saved Christmas by Matt Haig. Yes, that is the Matt Haig who wrote The Midnight Library and How to Stop Time. But he also has some middle grade books and he has at least two of them are Christmas focused. I think The Girl Who Saved Christmas might be the more appropriate comp here. And I would also look at The Christmas Genie by Dan Gutman. Those, you probably need something that is not holiday that captures sort of the family aspect, but I couldn't quite tell what was going on with the family enough to give a non-holiday comp. But I think all three of those would would capture the holiday feel and sort of the you've got to solve a riddle to discover the magic and move on. All of those get that a little bit. Thank you. Okay, next one. So grateful for the podcast. I'd love help finding comps for my work of women's fiction with elements of suspense and romance. Think the journey of self-discovery in Cheryl Strayed's Wild meets the suspense found in Laura Dave's The Last Thing He Told Me and the love story found in Emily Henry's Book Lovers, all way too big and not quite right. The novel follows protagonist Kat Hayes, an alcoholic elementary school teacher, and her tween daughter Ray, who's discovering her queer identity. After Kat drops Ray off at summer camp, she suddenly finds herself alone for the first time since she separated from her husband. Too upset to drive, she decides to go for a hike in the forest near Prescott, Arizona. But through a series of calamitous events, Kat gets lost in the wilderness, lights a signal fire that grows out of control, and endangers the life of her daughter, the summer camp in the nearby town. Jack, a rugged firefighter pilot who battled his own darkness, finds Kat, tries to help her rescue Ray, and quell the voices that threaten to burn Kat to the ground. Again, we've got some suggested comps here. I see why you say they're all a little too big. Wild, Emily Henry, the last thing he told me. So in addition to those, or instead of those, I would suggest first Kept Animals by Kate Milliken. And I thought of kept animals specifically because of the threat of fire. There is a wildfire in kept animals. It is mostly coming of age, but certainly has a very propulsive and suspenseful feel. It's a real page turner. The fire is more in the background than it is a major plot point throughout the book. But I think it's, I don't know, read it. And it's a great book. Read it and see if the tone, if if any of the tone fits. Anytime I hear about sort of a survival story, a nature story, like we're out in the elements in the wild, I think about Peter Heller. He is so good. And I think it's possible that his last three books might even work. The most recent one is, it has Ranger in the title, The Last Ranger, I think. Anyway, it's the most recent Peter Heller. Before that, he wrote The Guide. Before that, he wrote the river. And then he, I mean, he has, he can write anything. The dog stars, that one's not a comp here, but look at Peter Heller, see if any of those might fit. And then two books where I think they could work in terms of the, like, we are just, it's, it's suspenseful. We've got to, we've got to make it out. We've got to save ourselves. We've got to save others. The river at night by Erica Ferenczyk or breathless by Amy McCullough. So see if any of those or a combo of those might work for comps for this one. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, here's our next one. 
Hi there, thanks so much for offering this comp service. I always love listening to these recommendations and I'm hoping you can help me find comp titles for my upmarket novel, which is fully based in reality, but also heavily revolves around a fairy tale world. Anna Fincher hates her job and she might be pregnant. She hasn't told her husband Ben either of these things and she's not sure she's going to. A shocking phone call suddenly offers the perfect escape. Her estranged best friend Lionel recently survived a tsunami and the trauma sent him into a fugue state. He now believes he's King Clark, a character from the vivid fairy tale world they created together as children. Or is it the perfect escape? Anna agrees to return to her hometown to help Lionel recover his identity, but she hasn't spoken to him in 13 years. Helping Lionel means joining him in the imaginative great forest, but the further she delves into the past, the more lost she feels in the present. With increasing pressure from Ben to start a family, Anna must reckon with her own role in her fallout with Lionel and what she wants from her future with Ben. I've been struggling to find upmarket comp titles that deal with imaginative worlds, but that aren't speculative. I'd be so grateful for any recommendations. Thank you. Okay, this has got to be the first time in my recording of comps where I'm able to recommend both of Bren Greenwood's excellent novels. I think she does not get enough attention. I can't wait for her next book, My Coworker Destiny, and I are real Bren Greenwood stands. And so for this one, the Bren Greenwood novel that I'm going to recommend is called The Reckless Oath We Made. And the reason I'm thinking about that one is because one of the protagonists in The Reckless Oath We Made believes himself to be a knight and believes that he is protecting and saving our other protagonist. He is on the spectrum. It's not it's not a traumatic injury that has caused him to have this belief. It's just sort of how he how he lives day to day, but it is a a beautiful story. Bren Greenwood is a wonderful writer and again it's set very I mean it's very much in reality, but that could that could fit. And then I thought about this is not my job. My job is to suggest books, but I thought about the wonderful Ryan Gosling movie, Lars and the Real Girl. I have Ryan Gosling on the brain after seeing Barbie. Not that we want to make it all about the man in the Barbie movie. However, I am a real Ryan Gosling fan. And if you haven't already seen the movie, Lars and the Real Girl, do yourself a favor and and go see it. You are absolutely allowed to recommend movies, TV shows, <laughs> podcasts, etc. I know, I know your expertise is books, but yeah. All right. Here's our next one. Hi there, my name is Heather and I'm seeking comps for my YA contemporary fantasy novel told through dual first-person POVs. The story follows my main characters, Kat and William. Kat is an elemental and his ability to control an element of nature. William discovers he's also an elemental and is brought to the school where Kat lives to protect himself and train to fight the evil creatures that plague the human world. I would say my story is character-driven, focusing on Kat and Will's relationship as well as some of their other relationships at the school, and it has darker themes around past trauma and family history, Overall, it explores ideas of trust, belonging, and what it takes to let go of the past. I have one comp already that I really like, Legendborn by Tracy Dion, for elements of contemporary fantasy and a character being brought into a magic world previously unknown to them. Another I liked was the Circle of Magic series by Tamora Pierce for found family and elemental magic, but it is middle grade and set in a medieval world, plus it is quite old. I think I need some help. Thank you so much. So one fantasy book that I think works with the found family school themes is The Troubled Girls of Dragomir Academy by Anne Ursu. That's young. We love that book at East City Bookshop. It does skew a little bit younger. So I would say that that is like upper middle grade rather than YA, but it still could work. It's done very well, I think. So just take a look at it as a really good book. Another book that is not YA, although I think it reads very YA, and we have a lot of young adult readers who come looking for it, that's The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune, which everybody is probably familiar with. I think it is a beautiful found family story, so I think that could work. 
And then for one that might work instead of or in addition to Legendborn, where we've got a magical world, very strong characters and relationship driven, we set the dark on fire by Taylor K. Mejia, M-E-J-I-A. Take a look at that one. That one might be the most spot on, but I would consider the others too as possibilities. Thank you. All right. Here's our next one. Hi, Emily. I'm working on a contemporary fantasy and looking for some further comps for my novel. Current comps would be Ninth House and Hellbent by Lee Bardigo, in that it's for adults, yet the core characters are young and it's set clearly in our real world with fantasy elements woven in. Book of Night by Holly Black would be another good comp for Tone, in that the characters all have tough backstories and are struggling with the powers they were born with. My story is set in a mansion in southern England, inhabited by an end-of-the-world cult, taking in stops to British cities in a small British seaside town. The true heart of my story, amidst the world-building and prophecies, is an enemies-to-lovers LGBT plus relationship. I cannot find any good comps in this vein. I considered The Binding by Bridget Collins, but this is a gaslamp fantasy and too literary. I'm also missing any recent English contemporary fantasy comps generally. Any thoughts gratefully received? Okay, you are so right that it is really hard to think of, at least for me, contemporary fantasy and English contemporary fantasy. So much of fantasy reads or feels historical. So I couldn't think of anything that is that feels super modern and in the right now. I think the Lee Bardugo and Holly Black references sound perfect. Those are huge, but I think that they that that gives the feel for the type of book that we're talking about. I would also maybe look at Mordew by Alex Phoebe. That's M-O-R-D-E-W and his last name is P-H-E-B-Y. I should not assume that it is a man. I actually don't know Alex Phoebe's gender. P-H-E-B-Y though, you can look it up. I would consider Naomi Novik and just see if there's anything in her considerable list that feels like it might fit. We are big fans of J.R. Miro's Ordinary Monsters, which does feel historical, but is also feels extremely English and is outstanding fantasy. So I think it's worth it to look at it and see if the tone feels right, even if the time period is not quite right. And in our bookstore, a writer of one of our favorite recent queer fantasies is Freya Marsk. So look at Freya Marsk also feels historical, skews historical, but it's possible that the LGBTQ angle and the very English angle might make it a worthwhile comp anyway. Perfect, Emily. Thank you. Okay, next one. Hi, I'm looking for comp recommendations of women's fiction told in third person, single POV with a quippy, hopefully lightish and funny tone about a woman who has to try to save her personal financial mess, her business, her freedom, her family, and her marriage. Lily owns the only pharmacy in a small town until a longtime frenemy opens a large chain pharmacy in the town, which hurts her business. The building her business is in is for sale, but because of her now dwindling business and personal troubles, she can't purchase the building. In trying to provide the life she wanted as a child, she spends beyond their means, unbeknownst to her husband, and racks up a ton of credit card debt, which she cannot pay off. Desperate to fix her situation, but unwilling to confess to her husband, Lily turns to her best friend, who confides that she has been selling her family's prescriptions for Adderall and Ativan to women in their community and offers for Lily to join her, which she does. They soon find out that someone else in the community has been selling opioids and all evidence points to Lily. In the meantime, Lily's husband finds out about their finances and leaves, hurt, angry, and betrayed. When their children find out, they side with their dad, leaving Lily alone. Okay, I want to find out what happens, <laughs> what happens, and how how our hot mess express of a character is going to figure all of this out. So I was trying to think of books where the main character is really just 
in the middle of everything's terrible and what are what are we going to do? One book that might have the right tone where, since we said it was this is light and funny and just all kinds of issues are happening. Maybe Mostly Dead Things by Kristen Arnett. Kristen Arnett is so funny. She's such a great writer and she does a really good job at characters who are going through it. So I would look at Mostly Dead Things and then one that is coming out, I think it's it might come out tomorrow or Tuesday. I'm recording this on in August. So it is it's either out or will be out very soon by the time you hear this. It's called Amazing Grace Adams by Fran Littlewood. I think it's got that the right tone. It is definitely a woman who feels like everything is going wrong and she's got to put it right. Or maybe she won't. Maybe she just throws up her hands. The cover of the book, there are actually two different covers. One of them, she's giving the middle finger. It's just her face and like a big middle finger. That one's the one we will have at East City Bookshop. But there is another, an alternative cover for the stores that don't want a middle finger on the cover of their book. And that's kind of a modern, new, where'd you go, Bernadette? which might be too big and too old. So take a look at Amazing Grace Adams when it comes out very soon. That's incredible that the publisher has got two different covers. It's not I, often you see that, right? It's not. And, and they're not very different. I think it's just that there is, I don't know if it's like a badge or like, I mean, it's not a sticker, but I don't, I think maybe just some text is over the middle finger. It's not a wholly different cover. But Wow. You would have thought the publisher would have just gone with the, Safe option. I love that I they have the two different options. I know, I know. And and that I should say that was how it was presented to me when the book was sold in, when it was in the catalog. And I mean, we buy like a season ahead. So it's possible that, that has changed, but I think that there are two different options. And hopefully my boss doesn't mind that I got the one with the middle finger. <laughs> Laurie, <laughs> if you're listening, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I want to come get that one specifically. Yeah. Okay, here's our next one. Hi, I'm looking for comps for my dual POV psychological thriller. It's fast-paced, suspenseful, and dark and twisty with elements of family dysfunction and revenge. I'm having a hard time finding comps that feel like they fit the tone and themes of my story. The novel is set in a small coastal town where the economy relies on dangerous and extended fishing expeditions, creating many deep-rooted issues in the community. A mid-twenties waitress deeply impacted by her father's disappearance at sea when she was a child navigates a complex relationship with her mother who struggles with addiction. And when she unintentionally becomes the key witness in a serial murder investigation, she begins to suspect she's being watched. Then she meets a newcomer to town, an alluring man who she begins falling for until she discovers he is hiding shocking secrets about her family that could be connected to the ongoing murders. The lead detective on the investigation has a drive for success that has always made her put work above all else. When the killer begins to taunt her with mysterious messages that threaten to expose secrets from her past, she becomes trapped in erasing his time to make an arrest before more women are killed to save her career and herself. Can't wait to hear your suggestions. Thanks. Okay, so if I hear of a psychological thriller that deals with family dysfunction, family history of addiction, and alongside a murder investigation, one, I'm going to buy it. That's right up my alley. And two, I'm going to recommend Long Bright River by Liz Moore, which is both a family story and a very compelling mystery. It's wonderful. So absolutely take a look at Long Bright River. Even if none of you are writing psychological thrillers, read Long Bright River anyway. It is, I think, the great American novel about the opioid crisis. It's also, it's just wonderful. So first off, Long Bright River for sure. Second, because we're in a coastal town, we're talking about fishing expeditions. The setting feels right for a comp to The Mid Coast by Adam White. 
which I loved. It was a wonderful literary mystery. It might be more of a slow burn than this one, but it's got those small town family dynamics, family secrets, who can, who's figuring out what's really going on. It's excellent. And it's got the, a fishing vibe. It's set in the mid coast of Maine in a fishing community. So I think the mid coast could really work here. And then when it comes to a detective who is in a race against time and to try to figure out this serial murder investigation, my recent favorite is Real Easy by Marie Rutkowski, which is newly in paperback. It is also, it's more than dual POV, but one of the POVs in Real Easy is is the detective. And I have not read a book that feels as much like a race against time as that one. It's a mystery where you as the reader figure out the killer before the characters do, but instead of it feeling like, oh, I have this figured out, like, what's the point? It just heightens the suspense. And you're just like, you guys got to figure this out. Come on. I know who it is. You got to figure it out too. So I highly recommend that one as well. That's incredible because you usually think that would be a tension leak. So it's really, it's hard to do that well. It is so hard to do it. It is, it really heightened the suspense in a way that like, yes, like you said, usually that is a deal breaker for me. Like if I know too early who did it, I'm, I'm out. But this one, oh, it works perfectly. Amazing. And yeah, I, I would have considered Demon Copperhead, the great American novel about the opioid crisis. So I'm adding your recommendation to my list as well. Well, I will say I came up with that tagline about Long Bright River before I've been I've been saying that for several years before Demon Copperhead came out and before I read it. So I would put them alongside each other. Very different tones. But I, I certainly loved Demon Copperhead as well. Yeah. My favorite novel of last year. Yeah, one of mine too. Okay, here we go. Next one. Hello, I am seeking help with comps for my 80,000 word women's fiction titled Second Choices, which centers on what happens when a woman has a chance to connect with a son she gave up for adoption. The teenage birth comes after grooming by a man she trusted who assaults her and spreads vicious lies to cover up the truth. Worse yet, her mom believes the lies. Three decades later, her biological son reaches out to her and she imagines a perfect reunion. The path is rocky and emotional, but finally the two of them have found a connection But of course, there's always one more hurdle to overcome. The single POV dual timeline novel is the story of rising above trauma, its lifelong consequences, and forgiveness. I've considered Melissa Payne's The Night of Mendy Endings for its sibling relationships and the not-quite-so-perfect outcome, as well as Miranda Cowley-Heller's The Paper Palace for its emotional theme told in dual timeline that also reckons with the past. Note that My Dark Vanessa and Mika in real life are not good comps. Missing is a comp that shows adoptive relationship and confronting lies and those who believe them. Okay, so I love it when people tell me what are not good comps because that is helpful. Like you can anticipate, okay, this is what what might be suggested. So for a comp about people believing lies about you, this is a this is a nonfiction comp, but take a look at the book Unbelievable by Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong. It was originally published as a nonfiction book called A False Report. It was retitled Unbelievable because it was made into a television series starring Caitlin Deaver and Tony Collette, which is excellent if you haven't seen it. But this is the case of a woman reporting a rape, which is actually was perpetrated by a serial rapist and no one believes her. So the whole premise of the of the work is when a woman is not believed and what what it does to her and then what it does to other women who are hurt down the line because the the first person to come forward was not believed. I know that's nonfiction, but I think it could be at at the very least like good background. And and it's just a really maddening, infuriating, horrifying story. 
but worth but worth taking a look at. My next comp is brand new. It just came out. I just read it a few weeks ago. I have not heard people talking about it, but I think it is a book that will grow with word of mouth as people read it. And it's called Fireworks at Night by Beth Raymer. This book, it reads like a memoir. It feels so real. And it is also a book about struggling with the family who has let you down, reconnecting with the people who have betrayed you, as difficult as that is. It is not a book about not being believed about sexual assault, but it is very much a book about being betrayed by your mother and what that does to a person. It was excellent. I just, I really think it's a book that is going to grow as, as people discover it and recommend it to their friends. So well-written. Because you mentioned The Paper Palace, I will also mention the memoir Wild Game by Adrian Brodeur, which is very Paper Palace. It just happens to be true. And again, it is a mother putting a daughter in a terrible situation and the the effects will reverberate forever. Adrian Brodeur also has a really great novel that just came out this summer along those same themes. It's called Little Monsters. Again, that's a very good Paper Palace comp. So if Paper Palace feels right, look at these books by Adrian Brodeur. But definitely read Fireworks at Night because it's so good. And the mom is really terrible in that one. Adding it to my list. Yeah. Okay. Here's the next one. Hello, Cece, Carly, Bianca, and Emily. I'm currently looking for comps for my newly finished novel called The Space Between Atoms. It's an upmarket fiction novel. When Ava Moss's parents are tragically killed on 9-11, she is faced with choosing between guardianship of her four minor siblings in New York and her life in France with her dream job as an art conservator at the Musée d'Orsay and the love who waited for her. Ultimately, Ava gives up her career and love to help her siblings through their shared nightmare. Naturally selfish, she is challenged in this role. Ava becomes victim to her choices and finds herself regressed to what she sees as a life devoid of meaning. She feels cheated to have lost the career she single-mindedly worked toward, as well as the man who taught her to look up and experience the world around her. Luke Findice, and a former boyfriend beloved by the Moss family, as well as a survivor of 9-11, reconnects with the five siblings and becomes someone they rely on for much more than anyone imagined. With his help, Ava finds her way back to art restoration and subsequently an evolution of self, which she resists at every turn. Okay, so this is, I have a second opportunity to sing the praises of Talking at Night by Claire Daverly, which I mentioned earlier. And the reason I mentioned Talking at Night this time is because that is a book where a woman has put her dreams on hold because of a traumatic event. It's not 9-11, but it's a traumatic event in her family. And she's sort of trying to do the right thing at the expense of maybe her true self and her truest desires. There's also a character in the book who helps her find her way back to herself and rediscover sort of what it is that she's meant to be doing. It is so good, y'all. Talking at night is so good. The next one I'm going to suggest is called When I Ran Away by Alona Bannister. And the reason that I'm suggesting that one is because it hinges on 9-11. It's not in the same way that, that this work does, but it does have that as a focal point. And you see how what happens on 9-11 connects our main character to another survivor from that day and then sort of how she moves forward and struggles and what figures out what she wants in life. I don't know if the tone is right, but it's an excellent book. In the U.S., it was edited by Jenny Jackson, who wrote Pineapple Street and edits Peter Heller, who I mentioned earlier, and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, Ghosts by Dolly Alderton, who else? Jennifer Close. Anyway, I know that if Jenny Jackson 
edited a book, then I am going to like it. And one example of that is When I Ran Away by Alona Bannister. So I encourage everybody to take a look at it. And for those of you interested, we did interview Jenny Jackson on the podcast about Pineapple Street. So if you missed that interview, go back and take a listen. Okay, here's our next one. My novel, Mamie, set at the turn of the 20th century, begins with her as an unloved teenage daughter of a prominent family. After she is groomed and raped by an uncle she adores, she withdraws, vowing to never marry. Her father forces her into a marriage with a controlling man who enlists a family doctor to prescribe a tonic for hysteria, which she alternates with alcohol to medicate her melancholy. When she becomes pregnant by her children's piano teacher and her husband finds out, he beats her and she miscarries. As she lays dying, she sees her life and her husband's through the lens of redemption. They're probably more literary than my novel. The protagonist in A Little Life by Hanya Yana Gihari is probably the most similar to Mamie in their self-loathing, self-destructive behavior that stems from childhood abuse and sexual violence. And in the end, they both die. Kristen Hannon's The Great Alone and Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch seem comparable since they follow the protagonist from adolescence to adulthood while facing multiple and in internal and external obstacles to happiness, though I know these comps are too bold for a query letter. All right. A Little Life. So, so controversial and polarizing. A great, great love of, of mine. Maybe, maybe my greatest. I also loved The Goldfinch, so I can handle this tragedy and sadness that it sounds like we have here, I would suggest for the what must be like the emotional pull of this novel based on the comps that were mentioned, I would suggest Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, one of the only books in recent years that has given me the same love of a character. I loved Little Shuggy the same way I loved Jude St. Francis and Theo in The Goldfinch. I'm happy to say, this doesn't really spoil anything, but I, I mean, it, it spoils it a little bit, but Shuggy is not as sad as it sounds like this book is. It's not as sad as A Little Life. He does not die at the end, but it is a poignant, it is a, a heart ripper. So I would take a look at, at Shuggy if A Little Life in The Goldfinch feel right. And then for a historical book that has the same emotional gravitas in memoriam by alice Wynn is perhaps my favorite novel of this year i have been describing it as dead poet society meets brokeback mountain goes to world war one but the reason i'm re recommending it here is because it is historical it's you know it's not a modern story it's a world war one story and it is I mean, the horrors of war, it's, it, there's lots of trauma and lots of sadness, but it will, it will fill your heart the same way the books mentioned in the voicemail will. And I recommend, I recommend it to everybody. It's so wonderful. Damn it, Emily. I'm adding it to my list. This list keeps on growing. I don't know how Alice Wynn wrote In Memoriam. It's a debut. It feels like it could have been written in 1925. I mean, it feels like one of the great war poets wrote it. It is incredible, like an absolute masterpiece of feat. I cannot recommend it any more highly. Amazing. Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I'm looking for comparables for my novel, The Memory Boxes. It's book club fiction geared to thoughtful men and women between the ages of 40 and 100 years. It's crafted with the intimacy of memoir interspersed with a series of current conversations amongst four older women as they complete their end-to-end -end hike of the Bruce Trail and then spend 10 days hiking the Camino. The impetus for the memoir are the diaries maintained over her career by the protagonist, the retired registered nurse. 
the conversations reflect observations and the women's personal experiences with healthcare. I have set the women on three quests to mind the diaries, to hike the Camino, and to create a legacy art project honoring nurses and their patients. So far, my comparables for memoir and conversation are a book, Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk. Okay, so you mentioned Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk, which I think sounds like a great comp. I will suggest another one that that works in terms of older older characters on a quest on a on a walk and that is the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce. Rachel Joyce also has a book, a more recent book called Miss Benson's Beetle that I think also might work. I recommend them a lot to slightly older readers who want like what I think of as like an older coming of age and you're looking back on your life, it has that personal intimacy and interiority. So you're looking back at a long life and while also looking at like, what are we doing now and where are we going now? The other one I will recommend here deals with the Camino de Santiago particularly, and it is a memoir called Walking with Sam by Andrew McCarthy. And that is in fact, Brat Pack, Andrew McCarthy, who also happens to be a skilled travel writer and a very good memoirist. So this is his most recent book and it is about walking the Camino with his teen son. So I would take a look at that. I have heard really good things about it. I have not read that one, but I read his previous memoir, Brat, which I thought was very honest and vulnerable. And it really, it really surprised me in a good way. And because this one is about the Camino specifically, I would take a look at Walking with Sam. Another great one might be Itta and Otto and Russell and James by Emma Hooper. Yes, that is one that I I hear people mention and recommend, and I have not read it yet. And I keep thinking, I got to read that one. I just, the people who mention it and recommend it to me, it seems like one that I I need to take a look at. Yeah, it's incredible. I think it came out 2014, 2015. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit older, but but an amazing, amazing book. All right, our last one. Hey, Emily, thanks for your help with comp titles. My book, Edge Girls, is a high-concept thriller that I think is a plausible prequel to The Handmaid's Tale. It deals with topics of reproductive freedom and explores the question of why we choose to have children. It's a multi-POV story following the lives of three families as an awful virus hits that kills all children who haven't gone through puberty yet and renders women infertile. We flash back 10 years before to learn about a new government program that had come out, which offered huge financial incentives for people to marry and have kids, causing not only millions of babies to be born, but a lot of social unrest. In the final section of the book, we learn that the edge girls, the young women who had gotten their periods right before the virus hit, are able to get pregnant, which starts a massive power struggle to control these young women, their fertility, and their babies. I think it has the creepy dread of the push and the fast-paced tension and multi-POV shifts of Leanne Moriarty's Apples Never Fall. However, these are probably too big to comp, and I'm having a hard time finding recent pre-dystopian novels. Please help. The Edge Girls sounds outstanding. Um, The hook is, I think, just incredible, particularly with where we are now in the U.S. anyway. I would look at, um, I'm sure you've considered already The Power by Naomi Alderman, but on the off chance that you haven't, if I hear anything about um, a comp to The Handmaid's Tale and sort of harnessing women's power or a struggle for women's bodies and rights, I think about The Power by Naomi Alderman. And I would look at two, these I think are probably like maybe not quite speculative enough, but they're excellent books about womanhood and motherhood. And that's The Need by Helen Phillips. 
and My Murder by Katie Williams, which just came out. Oh, it's so, it's so good. I don't want to say too much because I want people to go in cold when they read My Murder, but I would look at both of those and see like if the tone is right enough to make it a comp. The plot is not quite on point, but I think that the, the themes and the tone could work. And the perhaps the best one is Future Home of the Living God by Louise Erdrich. And I it is hard, I think, to comp oneself to the great Louise Erdrich. But this is one of her perhaps lesser known books. It is one of the recent ones. And it is specifically about pregnancy in a world where we believe that pregnancy is no longer possible. So definitely take a look at that one. Thank you, Emily. Wow, that's 21 comps, everyone. That was a marathon. All of them spectacular. My To Be Read pile has grown exponentially. For our listeners, uh, Naomi Alderman is bringing out a new book in November called The Future. She was referenced now by Emily having written The Power. The Future is just incredible. Absolutely incredible. So look out for that one as well. Emily, we look forward to having you back next month. For our listeners, we will cut off for September on the 18th of September. So please make sure that you get all of your comp requests in then. And we'll try and get to as many of them as possible. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.